of 2017 last week we gave you the best of the year so far i don't know about you my list has already changed it's changed dramatically it's changed dramatically things yeah. things have shuffled around but that's the nature of it so stay tuned for the end of the year yes but this is 2017 yes and uh 2017 is the 10 year anniversary of all of the great movies of 2007 sure and we picked a great one tonight yeah but, uh, before we get started uh-huh. my name is dan scully my name is garrett smith and i like to movie movie yeah welcome to i like to movie movie welcome podcast like about movie movie movies. Movie. And um, yeah, so if you want to find us, yeah, uh, tell it. us where to find us. Uh, Facebook.com slash I like two movie. Dude, you you like started the episode before we yeah, started the episode. I thought I was going to craft an intro that yeah. could tie in, and then I realized I had no ties. No, it was good. So we're just going to get into it. It was like a cold open for the cold open. Yes, that's yeah. kind of that's the way yeah. it's going. I'm blowing it now. <laughs> no, it's fine. We're on Facebook.com slash I like two movie. It's numeric two. Twitter at I like two movie, and uh, find us on iTunes and drop us a review because uh, that's. That helps us uh, get listened to by more people. We had a really uh, great week with the last episode. Actually, we got a lot of lot of people coming our way these days, mm-hmm. which is very exciting. Uh, we're happy to have you all. Welcome to I Like to Movie Movie. We are uh, something we've been doing this year is talking about 2007 movies because it's the 10 year anniversary mm-hmm. of what might be the best movie year in our lifetime. Uh, it was a damn I, good I one. Think we all said arguable. 99. Yeah, that's true. 99 that's true. Was pretty that good. was another good one. Yeah, I think I would give it to 2007. Yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly in my my movie going years, uh, mm-hmm. 2007 is uh, lives on in my memory. And uh, what did we do previously for that? We did. Um, I mean, we've done Children of Men. Yep. In the past, yep. um, earlier this year, what did we do? Oh shit! Why we can't I remember? Here. Oh, we did Zodiac. Oh, we did Zodiac, the yes. best of, yeah. of 2007. Yes, we did. In, in my opinion. Yeah. But it's it's like picking a favorite child. Yeah. And we haven't said what movie this is yet because it's a movie that uh, not a lot of people talk about. Right. I had never I seen this before. when you do talk about it, the people have seen it go, yo, you know what? That movie was good. Yeah. And it's it wasn't a big one. Yeah. But um, we picked I've, it for a specific reason. Yes, yes. Uh, which is uh, the passing of uh, George Romero. <laughs> this is, uh, sounds so cryptic. Yeah, well, kind of. Uh, we're not talking about Survival of the Dead. No, we're not talking no. about a George Romero movie today. Uh, but we wanted to honor Romero uh, by talking about a movie by another director that has passed. Uh, and... And in 2007, Sidney Lumet made his final film, which was uh, When the Devil Knows You're Dead? Before the before Devil, the Devil Knows, Knows You're Dead. dead. Uh, but uh, before we get talking about that, we did want to talk about Romero and his passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the inspiration for this week's movie, which happens to be a 2007 movie, which is great. <laughs> it's kind of dark that his inspiration is that we just chose another deceased director that we'll miss. A little bit. But uh, at the same time, as the man behind zombies, yeah. I think that is rather appropriate. Yes, it's also a good excuse to celebrate a, a lot of directors that have passed, Absolutely. which is something we'll do over the course of the episode. Um, What's your what's your story with George Romero? So with Romero, I don't I think I'm trying to think if I I want to say I saw pieces of like Land of the Dead when I was in high school, maybe. A buddy of mine was like a horror movie guy. I wasn't really he's like the only reason I saw things like Halloween and stuff when I was younger. Um and so I think maybe I saw pieces of Land of the Dead, but I was like I just feel like I remember always being aware of George Romero. Mm -hmm. Like, I knew about Night of the Living Dead, I feel like, my entire life. That's, like, a movie I had just always heard about and knew about, and I knew about his name. Um, And it wasn't until, like, a couple, I don't know, 
four or five years ago, maybe, that I finally saw, I went out of my way to see Dawn of the Dead. Because mm-hmm. uh, I had seen Zack Snyder's version and had never seen the original. Um, and I was like blown away by it. I think I saw like the really long cut, which I think is what we found to do our episode on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I ended up going back and watching Night of the Living Dead. I watched Day of the Dead. I watched Land of the Dead. I still haven't seen the last like two or three. Okay, there's um, two more. Diary yeah. and Survival. Uh, both totally worth it. Yeah, I really want to see both yeah. of them because they were, I think... At least one of them was directed by Romero, right? Both of them were. Both of them were, yeah. That's the thing is, Romero, he, it sucked because he inspired so many movies. Yeah. And it was at Land of the Dead got made because yeah. we were at the point where it was like, zombies are cool again. Right. Let's get the original guy. Like, it was it was almost like a reboot kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. But unfortunately for Romero is that he really could only get funding for Of the Dead movies. So he went right. to do Diary of the Dead, yeah. which was the... Uh, Found footage version. Right, yes. And so, but, you know, he's exploring. And then uh, Survival of the Dead, which, you know, I don't want to say too much because you have not seen it. Yeah. But it actually changes the zombie rules in a way that's fundamental. Yeah. It almost completes the story. Oh, interesting. So that's, that's cool. And yeah. it's weird because it wasn't until much later that I was like, oh, that actually completes it in a nice way. Yeah, that's cool. Because oh, that's no, one of the things that I loved about that series was that he did sort of like every 10 years come back to it and then progress it in ways that everybody else that was just doing their own versions of it weren't thinking of or doing. Mm. Uh, and he turned it into like a whole social satire, which is really well, he's interesting. The kind of guy, he's the kind of filmmaker that used zombies for a reason when most zombie movies use zombies for zombies. Yeah, yeah. Because they're fun. Right, it's, yeah. It's inarguably fun, and there are themes that can be explored with it, but he always kind of went for the most, I don't want to say on-the-nose themes, but he really swung for the fences going for the themes. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, we could... And I love 28 Days Later, No Love Lost Here. I think yeah. it's a bona fide masterpiece. But it's not saying much beyond like, hey, when all the chips are down, people can get crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and aren't zombies scary? What yeah. if they're fast? You know? yeah. And So there's a little bit of that. But even that was explored by Romero first. Yeah. And I have very little experience with him outside of the Of the Dead series. Okay. I just this week watched Two Evil Eyes. I have not seen Two Evil Eyes. is the double feature he made uh, where it's him and Dario Argento. Oh, and they, I love me some anthology horror. That, and that's what it is. They both do an Edgar Allan Poe story. Nice. I oh, really cool, liked cool. it. And it's on Amazon Prime right now. Have you seen Creepshow? I haven't. Okay. Well, no, you, I haven't. You have to have seen one of the creep shows there Maybe. is a third that has nothing to do with one i, I of the don't two. think so we're doing those because they're great anthology horror. i would love they're it influenced by the ec comics oh yeah uh stephen king's in one of them oh but cool creep show two there's a story called the raft okay it will it will chill you yeah it's so awesome. good and, you know they're hokey yeah. and silly but uh oh, he, and that's the thing i think my love for anthology horror comes from romero right because he made the creep shows right he made the creep shows stephen yeah. king wrote he directed yeah it's two pieces uh, that's cool yeah I have to tell you this. My first experience with Romero wasn't even seeing the movie. Okay. When I was a young child, I don't know how old, but definitely young to the point where just because a horror movie was called a horror movie, yeah. I knew to be scared and would yeah. be scared, which lasted long into my life, mm-hmm. uh, I think, which is fun. But I saw one of those, uh, I guess it was just like a talking head on TV documentary about horror movies. Oh, sure. Or maybe it was about horror in Pennsylvania. I forget what it <laughs> yeah, was. Yeah. But they started showing footage from Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. And they showed the footage of the little girl killing her mom. Oh, yeah. And footage of zombies eating flesh. Yeah. And they were talking about like, oh, they actually used chicken and turkey breast for this. <laughs> and immediately, like, I just didn't want to eat them anymore. You know, when you're yeah, a kid, yeah. and you see something gross, like, yeah. that reminds me of this. I'm not going to eat it. Yeah. That happened. Like I didn't eat that That's shit crazy. for a while, and it was just creepy. And and I always, you know, when you're a kid and something creeps you, so you're always looking over your shoulder. Yes. 
it just that little bit of footage put that in me. Yeah. And it was horrifying. Yeah. And then maybe two or three years later, I was at a yard sale uh-huh. and there was a tape of Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. With the front of it was a colorized photo of the zombies. Yeah. Did you recognize them? Uh, well, I re- it was, you know, I recognized it and like I was already starting to become a movie nerd. Yeah. And it was a dollar. So I bugged my mom. I was like, yeah. can I have a dollar? I'll pay it back when we get home. Yeah. I have to get this. And Already the nerd was blooming. I'm like, this is a rare find. Like, <laughs> it's not. That movie was public domain at yeah, that point. Yeah. So everybody who owned VHS printers sold Had it. Had it, yeah. And, uh, but what was so cool about it was I bought it and I put it on the shelf and I was terrified to look at the cover. Like, <laughs> I've never to this day watched that tape. Oh, that's so funny. And when I was a little kid, I would go up to the shelf and I'd be like, right, I'm going to look at it. Yeah. And I'd pull it. Yeah. And I'd pull it out and I'd look at it and I'd kind of explore it and then put it away because yeah. it was too freaky. Yeah. And so before ever seeing a Romero movie, he had terrified me on a cellular level. Yeah. And then turned out, spoke to schlock sensibilities. Totally. You know, that's, that's yeah. pretty big. So I got it. Hats he, off to, to a great. And I think you and I agree. Now, I've not seen a lot of his other movies, but my favorite of the of the Dead series is actually Day, Day of the Dead. Day of the yeah. Dead. Day of the Dead. Well, you should watch Monkey Shines. Uh, I really want it's to. probably my favorite uh, uh, Romero movie. It might be. It yeah. might not, It's certainly not his best, but it's yeah. my favorite and it has so much fun lore around it. Yeah. Like the star of it went deep into Scientology and then Whoa. broke free and spoke out against it. Whoa. Um, there's some great stuffed animal effects. And you know how good <laughs> dummy work, but it's with monkeys. Uh, Patton Oswalt said that it was written during Romero's gallon of vo- or bottle of vodka a day diet. Okay. Which I don't know if that's true. Right. But as a filmmaker who came up in the late 60s, early 70s, I think it Sounds has to about be. right to me. And this movie sort of speaks to that. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, this is one of my prouder moments. I criticized this as such and then saw a similar quote in Ebert's review mm-hmm. that in this two-hour mess... There's a 90-minute masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a 90-minute great monkey shines that yeah. is instead in this Shaggy Dog movie that is probably better as a Shaggy Dog movie. Yeah, but yeah. I highly recommend Monkey Shines. I really want to see that. It's cool. That was an early uh, How Did This Get Made episode, actually. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to reach out to June so bad because I got what she was saying about <laughs> yeah. the monkeys that they made fun of her for. Uh-huh. But, you know, whatever. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, oh, actually, you came up on that show again recently. Did I really? Well... It, Kind of somebody. So this is think about how long it's been since yeah. your first voicemail about our <laughs> our foxes, dog animals, or cat animals. Yeah, yeah. A guy just left a voicemail on like last week's episode that was like, "I have some information about foxes being dog and or cat animals." Yes. Well, what did he decide? Uh, I still well, don't know. he I forget. He had like that's amazing. That he, it, it's a great question. He had like a genus name that I think has like a a dog like uh uh, uh like canis. Yeah, 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 something like that. Like at the end of it, like a dog word at the end of it or whatever. I'm so, so happy I think that, that my legacy. Yeah, yeah. It was just funny to me that it was like so many episodes later, somebody <laughs> called in like, I have some information about foxes. It's a good question because yeah. I, I forget who I first asked that to, but it became a joke question. It's yeah. funny. The other question I was on the show for, oh, yes. those are my two joke questions that I ask anybody yeah. because they're two questions that that don't really have an answer that, right. I, that I know of. I mean, I'm sure there is a yeah. definitive answer of whether foxes are dog animals or cat yeah. animals. But there is... So you almost don't want to know. Definitely not a definitive answer about who would play Ernest P. Worrell in mm-hmm. the reboot of the Ernest series. No one can. Nope. That was Flash in the pan, and yeah. it flashed like a hundred times. <laughs> one guy. Uh-huh. Old slinky dog himself, Jim Varney. <laughs> But right. Yeah, that's oh, wow. Okay, well, yeah. right on. Yeah, well, and kudos to them because I know they're listening. R.I.P. Jim. R.I.P. George. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that I mean, uh, I'm I really like uh, Romero's of the Dead movies, and I'm like interested to sort of 
dig into his other filmography. I wish that it didn't take his passing to you know be that interested. Well, you know what though, if there's a silver lining to be had, yeah, his passing will put that India. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. It's it's. I think the lesson that everyone should take away is that this guy, just because of the business and the way that the business is run. The fact that people were making movies that were carbon copies of his and getting careers off of it, yeah. whereas he could only exist within the box, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, he couldn't get money without of the yeah. dead at the end. That's a shame because yeah. I bet there was a lot more that that we didn't get to see, mm-hmm. and it's it's heartbreaking because what we got to see was masterful and just awesome. He, I assume he's going to be legendary. Oh, he is. He's absolutely legendary. You know, like he just, he influenced so much pop culture and cinema specifically. Uh, You just see his fingerprints all over stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I I can't imagine he won't go down as, as one of the legends of uh, of film. And he rocked uh, those damn glasses to the end. Yeah. That was his brand. Yeah. And he spanned so many decades. He's got his glasses. Yeah. He, you know, he spans so many decades in like technologies in film too, which is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that led us to talking about like directors that have passed and and um, you know movies that we were kind of interested in just from these sort of legendary directors, and uh, that brought you to a movie that you had seen once and I have never seen until tonight. Uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which is Sidney Lumet's final film mm-hmm. uh and we looked it up and i was like i wonder what other sydney lumet movies i've seen and it turns <laughs> out i have seen sydney lumet's first and last movie and the whiz and the whiz that's Everyone's it seen the whiz yeah 12 your men was his first movie uh which is i saw when i was like 16 mm-hmm. i've seen the whiz at some point in my history which is actually a really great fun I think movie I was babysat by the whiz at least 10 times in my definitely life, they just yeah. put in the tape they're yep. like ah, nintendo things yep like, oh. yeah I, I liked that movie when I was a oh, kid, yeah. so I, you know, that that lives on for me. And then, and then this, I've never seen Network. I've never seen um, what was the other one we were talking about? Well, uh, Find Me Dog Guilty Day Afternoon, one. Dog Day, Serpico, yeah. all yeah. good stuff. I, I've not seen any of those. I was just unaware that he did so much. Yeah, I knew that he did all these iconic movies, but I forgot that before in Hollywood, you know, sometimes you just had to work. Yeah, and, like he was a working director. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. I think it's. I think came along. he had like seventy three credits on IMDb, oh, something like that. Have it open. Yeah. Sidney Lumet as a director. Oh, I forgot when you closed the app. Oh, uh, shut you out. I think it was. I think it was like seventy three, something like that. Um, so yeah, he. I mean, and I want to say twelve regular yeah, men. Seventy three. You know that. Yeah, is like the fifties. Is twelve regular men. So this dude also, you know, he goes uh, five, six decades of uh, movie making. Twelve angry men. I believe it is the fifties. Yeah, it's 1957. Yep. God damn it. My and he mom gets to six. 2007. That's six, 50 years. That's incredible. 50 years. 50 years of movie making. 73 movies and 50, well, 73 directing credits in, in 50 years. Pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I fucking loved this movie. Wasn't it great? I really, really liked this well, movie. Before you dive in, yeah. it, this is what I'm going to say to you. Please. Um, it's a toast. It's an Irish toast. Oh, yes. And it's, Hit me with uh, it is. Um, May the road rise to meet you. Yeah. May the wind be at your back. Yep. And may you get to may you get to hell or no sorry may you get to heaven, uh, thirty minutes before the devil knows you're dead. Yeah. And so, it's speaking to the idea of like may all of the things that need to work out, may it all work out. You yes. Know? And if you can beat the devil to heaven by thirty minutes, yeah. You know you're good. Well, I also, I mean, I think given the context of this movie, I because you had told me that, uh, or you had the movie opens with the final part of that phrase, yes. just the. Uh, yeah, may you, you get, get to, to heaven, heaven before th- thirty the minutes before the devil knows you're dead. Uh, I was thinking like I can't, this is how I interpreted that is like without the context of the first part of it with just those two phrases, uh, it kind of sounds like 
you know, uh, may you get to spend 30 minutes in heaven before the devil knows you're dead, because once the devil knows you're dead, you're going to hell. Yeah, yeah. Like I think it all represents the idea of just, like, you know, with the first part, it's, you know, hopefully everything will work yeah. out in your favor, but the the concept that you know you're not going to do something bad and get away with it right in some way it's going to catch up with yeah. you and we've all got the devil in us yeah. and so it will catch up with you yeah. no matter how good you think you yeah. got it and i think that's what it speaks yeah, to yeah that's interesting yeah that i mean this movie is about people that do not have it well though <laughs> well one of them uh, is trying to but uh, by cheating I mean, we'll get into it but yeah. it does speak to generations of just certain seeds of doubt and seeds of behavior yeah. are planted where you know, there's, and it's with anything where if you look at it one way, you go, well, you got into this mess yourself. But if you look at it from an ever so slightly different angle, it's, well, you know, I get, I get it. I see what happened, what made you be like that or act like that or yeah. do that. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. You know, like their personalities are a product of their upbringing. And yeah. we know their upbringing was, as far as we can tell, good enough. It seems fine. But there's things are brewing, you know. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, we'll get into that as it yeah. goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't. I I just I really like this. I'm like very excited to get into it and talk about it. I think what it comes down to for me is this is one of those where anybody could have shot this movie because the script is so airtight. Yeah. and gotten a good movie. Yeah, um, and Lumet adds to that by making it great, and yeah. so you know uses what elements make a movie a movie movie mm-hmm. to justify its existence as a movie. But yeah. if this was done, this could be done as a play. Yep, this could be done as a well written story. The mm-hmm. plot machina- machinations mm-hmm. are or is machinations i don't know the plot mechanics yes are all airtight yeah and it's got a just really believable and uh lived in dialogue yeah to buy that so really director free you've got a compelling uh piece this is a great script it's a great script yeah. and then you know lament elevates that he does and i but he also i think he uh, a lot of the elevation in this is he captures these great performances i mean this cast is incredible Philip Seymour Hoffman, another R.I.P. This is a very rest in peace episode, uh, and and Ethan Hawke are both fantastic in this movie. Yeah, he's in Valerian, uh, and uh, is he? Yeah, he's in one scene, Ugh. and he's having a lot of fun. I can't wait to see that. It's it's good. I'm I going. Mean, I'm actually. I'm going to prioritize that over Dunkirk just because yeah. I know I can see Dunkirk. Yeah, Dunkirk I don't know how long Valerian's going to last. So I'm. I'm put it this going. way: it's it's one of those movies that it's like, all right, you're a little too long, and you lose steam in the middle, but. Upon leaving, by the time I got into the car, I had ordered the first three graphic novels. Yeah, I'm so a, you know, it's I'm gonna be there. Those. I yeah. can't wait. I, I'm like very excited to see yeah. that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, both Ethan Hawke, both of them give fantastic performances in this. But also, so does the uh, uh, Albert Finney as mm-hmm. their father, uh, um, Rosemary Harris, Mama. Yeah, she's very good. Uh, but Amy um, Ryan, Amy Ryan is awesome in this movie, and she doesn't even have like a whole lot to do, but she's really, really good. Marissa Tomei is fantastic. She has. Like more to do than it even seems. Like she's not she's she's in it. She's not in it a whole lot, but she gives so much in the the little bits she has. She has like a lot of kind of different sides that she has to play, which are really interesting. Um, it's just a it's a really fucking well acted movie for a fantastic script. You could pull out your iPhone and just like set it on top of a car and drive your car around, and it would be a fantastic movie. Mm-hmm. But met kind of gives it this you you had a great quote from uh, Ethan Hawke Ethan Hawke was on uh WTF yeah. Mark Maron's show and uh he said that when they were making it 
uh, Lumet was shooting digital, and he kept saying, ah, I want to kind of make it look old-fashioned. Yeah. And Ethan Hawke said, well, why are you shooting digital? And yeah. Lumet, being, you know, having the foresight that he had, said, give it time. It's going to look the way I want it to look. Yeah. And Ethan Hawke remarked that, you know what, I go back and I look at that movie, and I go, wow, it does have that not-so-crisp, worn-around-the-edges feel does. that film can create. And Lumet did it with staging and blocking. And, yeah. you know, I'm expounding upon what he said, but mainly it was just... Give it time. It will age. And yeah. it does capture that quality. Well, and he kind of does that with, um, you know, one of the things that you and I kept kind of giggling about, but it is an interesting choice, is that just that very simple, very old school effect of like the just sort of the hard cutting as he zooms in between two different scenes mm-hmm. with that little sound effect. It almost feels like very early Tarantino. Oh, you know well, what I mean? He also does the thing where there's a couple, they're faster than presidential zooms, but they're zooms where someone looks up and goes fuck yeah and the camera moves in towards it but they do a couple of them um one where it's like a sweeping move in yeah and then other times where it's the more presidential speed yeah then it'll cut and we're actually a lot closer yes yeah and then it keeps moving slow cut yeah, there's like jump a cuts yeah little jump cuts to just kind of speed that up but he does that i i think the word for the movie would be rhythm yeah the movie has to have a rhythm to it because it's it's not it's it's not it's disjointed chronologically, but not in a way like uh, I was I was saying this to Jenna last night. We were yeah. talking about Pulp Fiction. Yes, and I said Pulp Fiction is a hidden gimmick uh-huh. in that just by sh- showing it out of order, we get to forget that there's no actual plot arc. Right, right. but Tarantino being smart about it actually uses that to drive po- you know drive thematic points home. Yeah, yeah, and so it gets it gets a pass. But a lot of times people use that, whereas this one. The chronology was, uh, I would say, outwardly, it's like an outward spiral. Yeah. Where we start at the oh fuck moment. Yeah. And we both watch, uh, from one side, the radiation outward from that moment. Yeah. And also the confluence of many forces that become focused to be that moment. Yeah. And so by doing that, you know, chronological structure, you need to have a rhythm to it. Yeah. Or else people will get lost as to what's happening and where. Yep. Uh, Dunkirk is actually a great example I'm of, so of doing the that. messed yeah. up uh, timeline, but yes. in a way that, that Builds just tension, adds to a kind pace. of. Exactly. Yeah. It's yep. just a pace thing. But same thing here, because this is information release. Yeah. This is repetitive scenes being shown yes. just from different angles. There has to be something about it so that we don't go, I'm kind of just watching the same thing again. Right. Because all he's doing is replaying it with a little bit more information each yep. time. And that needs to be digestible. And yeah. it's the cutting and the those shot, uh, the way that he uses the rhythm of these zooms and the mm-hmm. cuts like that to uh, just kind of keep you on beat with it. Yeah. And it just the, the, the specific moments where we sort of jump from you know one point in the timeline to another those weird sort of like literally smash cutting between we do now a lot then, of hand now, gesturing yeah, we on do the i know <laughs> there's like this smash cutting like now then now then now then you know what oh, i mean yeah, it well, happens like real fast they do that to signify the time jumps the transitions because yeah. everything else sort of i think there was just one shot that one has fade, a fade. Yep. it's just quick cutting yep. and so when we do a time jump it will do there's like a sound effect, and it, it smash cuts between both time periods, kind yeah, of back, back and, and forth, forth back really and forth. fast. It's almost like a shitty, if I were making like, like ah, star wipe. Yes. Just like a shitty, like, fading into the next scene, but it's done in a way that's hard cut, and it's done in a way that, uh, to speak to Ethan Hawke's point, yeah, uh, that is sometimes just by nature of old films, they did that because they just had a pair of scissors and tape. Yep. So in shooting digital, he could do any fucking transition he wants, and, you know, cost him nothing, yep. but... 
keeps that. Oh, you got to see Dog Day because that is very much an on film movie like that. Yes. And uh, Lumet captures that here. And that shot, the way they transition, that is Absolutely. very much of You just that captured flavor. exactly what I was trying to say. Like, that's the thing that I think really drives home this sort of like older look to this movie. Because mm-hmm. it is, I think, clearly like a digitally shot movie. You can oh, kind yeah. of see that. Um, but it has a, there's a look to it that makes it feel a little old. Mm-hmm. But specifically, well, now it is a little bit old. Yeah, from absolutely. This moment. Yeah. Uh, but he specifically uses like old filmmaking tricks like that, where it's like, uh, well, you used to just have to cut the film, put it back together. So we'll just make it kind of we'll look like that. that's all worked. we had at our disposal. Yeah. Yep. And it fucking really works to give it this kind of, I don't know, it, it, because this is sort of a, would you almost call it like noiry? It's like, yeah, a, I mean, it's like noir. I mean, if, I talked about this on our end of year episode. Yeah. This to me is what I enjoyed about this, what I enjoyed about Hell or High Water. Yeah. Where it has that noir thing. Hell or High Water ties in a Western, but it's not a Western movie. No, yeah. This has that noir thing. It has sort of that heist film thing. Yes, yeah. But it also, you know, a family drama too. It, it really is. I mean, that's ultimately, I think, like what, at least for me, was like so gripping about the story was mm-hmm. the family drama at the heart of it. Um, but yeah, it just, he, yeah, something about that very simple film, old school filmmaking technique makes it feel like in kind of like an older style of uh, storytelling even you know well, to it's pull got another like a classic kind of feel to it exactly well and that's to pull another thing from uh, Ethan Hawke's mouth in yeah. that same interview he talks about why it has that feel and it's something we always talk about is what limitations made yes. the movie work and film used to be a limitation oh yeah where it's like we've got we've got 10 minutes yep. and we've got to use eight of it we can, <laughs> yeah. only two can hit the floor so yeah. go and apparently Ethan Hawke said so many times during the movie Sidney Lumet would just be like, all right, cut, we got it. And it would yeah. be the first take. And I'd be like, oh, well, listen, can I kind of do it this way? And he'd be like, no, 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 we're gonna, we'll cut it together. Yeah, yeah. And Sidney's thing was just get it out, get it on the film, and then we'll make a movie around yeah. it. And, you know, luckily he has this stellar cast who are doing great work. Yeah. But apparently a lot of what we're seeing is the first take. Yeah. And, you know, that can be a good or bad thing. Yeah. But I think here it's good because, one, once you get onto that shooting schedule, it's I got to bring A game all oh, the time. Yeah. But two... And I'm no actor, but when but I'm terrible at taking direction. Yeah. You know, and that's I'm really bad at that, yeah. Because then the second performance, you can see in my face me thinking about the last <laughs> one. And I would probably the take that I hated that was first yeah. would probably end up being ultimately the best, the best yeah. because the rest are all aware of themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so I think there is a little bit of that there. Mm-hmm. And, um one of the things that I love about Dog Day is it, it's perfect for Pacino because Pacino screams. Yeah. And when he's fucking screaming, that can be really stupid. But in yeah. these moments where it's like the cartoonishness of it is what sells it. It's yeah. Like, he had to go big because, you know, it's it's go big. We'll cut you down. Later yeah, it's the only time. Yeah. yeah. Rather do too much and we'll fix it. Then. And so there's that level of urgency to it that I think serves the story well. And also serves an actor like Hoffman well. Oh, my God. And when he's playing such a blowhard character, he's, yeah. you know, he's got to be a one properly motivated but you you just have to be able to get there with him yeah yeah he's playing i wouldn't say larger than life but Mm -mm. he's a little bit doing what we accuse Kate blanchett of where it's like man you're going to 12 (laughs) and we needed 10 10 and a half most yeah but you're making it work yeah yeah he he has that yeah he definitely does but yeah man he's good in this movie but i think i think you're right part of like what is so um successful about like the reason his character comes off so successfully i think is kind of the storytelling structure, which is very interesting in this because it's parsing out information 
in bizarre ways where, you know, the, the format of the movie is to just kind of jump back and forth through time. Uh, the day of the crime, two days after the crime, three days before the crime. And we kind of cut back and forth between all these time periods with a different focus on a different character each time. That structure allows information to come out in interesting ways. And what it, what it really allows for, specifically for Hoffman's performance, is this sort of slow bubbling build of what's happening inside of him mm -hmm. that eventually gets released in a, like an amazing performance scene. And I that shouldn't work as well as it does. It works. Like, yes, it shouldn't. And it works amazing. And I really think it's because, I don't know, if you think about it, this if you were to watch this story linearly, linearly we would see some big Hoffman moments early. Mm -hmm. Because the downfall that leads to the crime itself has a lot of big sort of what the fuck, what the fuck. And then we build back up to more what the fuck, what the fuck after the crime. But because of the way it's all laid out with the crime being first and then slowly revealing that information of what happened before and what comes after, it gets to be a very slow, like a start as a small performance that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as the movie goes on, even though linearly that wouldn't have been the case. And I think the thing that's cool about that that really works for the character is his big emotional moment with his dad is all about like, I have slowly been building this resentment towards you and the rest of the family over all of these years. So when he has that release of all of that, we feel it because we have also been watching him slowly build and bubble over the course of this smaller story. Mm -hmm. It parallels that sort of lifelong journey that he's been on that he sort of references in that scene. I think that's like really, really amazing storytelling. You know it, what I, mean? I think it allows us to empathize with him too. Yeah. Because if we did it linearly... Right off the bat, we'd be like, these are bad dudes. Yes. Um, but instead, we're, we're given a mystery almost yeah. where we're shown what happened. And it's like, you know, we, the crime's appalling. Yeah. But by the time you get to, I mean, in each moment, you're kind of just wanting to know what happens. Yeah. So that by the end, you know, you've been led on by your curiosity, but then you realize, man, they, I know how they got there now. Mm -hmm. And so you don't. I, I don't really come out of it hating any one character no. because they're properly motivated, mm -hmm. even though they do things that are despicable. Right. Well, they're also, um, you know, we were talking a little bit when we were watching it about uh, this theme of, like, cowardice and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and they are all kind of cowards that are making, like, cowardly decisions in the face of, um, you know, tough tough life choices. Um, but the I think the big thing is, like, they... I don't know how to say it. They look they let that kind of like panicky cowardice. I don't know. It's, it's kind of like you were saying before, that seems like something that is like this trait that's being passed down, right? Mm -hmm. It's this familial thing of like, everybody seems to have been given a pretty good life that they wasn't like enough for them or something that they over. Well, they didn't get to express the stresses that they, yeah. Um, and I think it's typically something that, that a lot of men do because we're put into the role of, you know, you ha you have to be the one that keeps your shit together. Yeah. Um, I admire my dad so deeply because he is always the one who who will just he'll be the bad guy because it needs to get done. Yeah. And he knows it's the right thing. And uh, great example. Yeah. So my grandmother, she's ninety one now. Yeah. And just recently, it just was like, hey, you know what? We all live near. Her. She doesn't need a car. Before yeah. that becomes a problem, we can all drive her wherever we got to go. Yep. Let's take the car. And everyone was on board. But when it came time to do it, yeah. no one wanted to do it. Yeah. And my dad took a lot of shit because he did it. Yeah. But he's the one that did it. Yeah. 
And I see the stresses on his face of just all of the things over the years that it was just, I have to be the one to keep it together. Yeah. And I think a lot of men do that. Um, yeah. You know, when we hear like the male suicide rate, a lot yeah. of it has to do with like, you're just not expressing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And because we've created this this world where expression is, is bad mm-hmm. and stoicism is good. Mm-hmm. I, I can identify with that to oh, some yeah. degree, you know? And I mean, that's like, uh, that is really what a lot of this movie, I think, is about. Because the when you get to the the sort of finale, the final, like, 30 minutes, you're just watching Philip Seymour Hoffman's character go back and forth through that mm-hmm. thing over and over again. Like, he has the conversation with his dad, which leads to the explosion in the car, which then he sort of comes back, dip, then sort of internalizes all of that and becomes like super low key. Mm-hmm. Uh, when his wife is then deciding to leave him and telling him that she's cheating on him, and then he that he bottles all of that even tighter to go try and help his brother, which we find out is actually all this bottling has just been a build up to another explosion mm-hmm. of like true vile kind of like hatred for everything, you know, uh, that leads to a lot of violence. Uh, it, it, it's pretty, I, I found it relatable and it, it, it's pretty. Repression it, leads to rot. Yeah. It's, it's a 100% yeah. fact. It always happens. Yeah. You hold something in, it's going to rot you from the inside out. Yeah. But I also like, I bought it in this movie. Oh, like, absolutely. That, that's a theme of a lot of, of a lot of things. You know, most movies are made by men and are about men. That's like a theme of a lot of things. But like, I really understood and bought the big explosions that his character was going through at the end Mm -hmm. they they were because they were like properly motivated but but i don't even mean that in like a a writerly way of like oh we got all the perfect scenes in to make sure we knew when he exploded it was because of this this and this it was more like a um it was more in hoffman's performance where it was just like i could see the weight of years of trying to just keep it together. Mm-hmm. I, I could just well, see it. We also find at some point that not only did he take the role of I have to keep this together, yeah. but uh, he also did it in a way like I need to show them that I am able to do yes. this. Yeah. And what's funny is when you look at the family, like it before any of this happened, it almost seems like that really wasn't needed. Right. You know, his sister has her shit together, yep. w- without a doubt. She's barely a character. She yep. has her shit together. Yeah. <laughs> Well, actually, that's another thing that I that's wanted to, to mention because yeah. we we talked about how most of the women in this movie, I don't want to say that they're that they're nags, right? But because we see it through the lens yep. of these two men that see them as a burden, yes. in a way, yes. And you know, it's not saying that that they don't have care for their wives, but right? Because we see it through their lens, yep. uh, it fixes what could be a criticism of like, oh, the women don't get to do anything. Right. That and Marissa Tomei's performance. Yeah, like yeah. that's the framing device of it. Is that agreed? The ex-wife is the hag, but at the same time, I look at her and go, she's fucking right. He's not yeah. paying child. Oh support. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the you know the the current wife for Philip Seymour Hoffman, she is the nag for it. But we find out she actually has uh, deeper issues that she's dealing mm-hmm. with too that mm-hmm. stem back to their you know their relationship. Yeah. The only one who isn't a problem is mom rosemary harris yeah and also the dad does not treat her as that either so we do see this source of of love which is interesting which leads me to the other thing i wanted to talk about yeah um i guess we're just going to get into spoiler mode. yeah 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 when albert finney right before he kills philip seymour hoffman when he says it's okay yeah it's okay yeah the dad that wouldn't have bred all of these problems would have said it's okay and left it at that. Yes. But that's the moment where we see Albert Finney and we go, 
he does have that vengeful darkness to him too. And yeah. where his feels justified here, yeah. I look back and see like, you know, he he uh he probably was very capable of kind of excluding his son without realizing it. He probably did have darkness back in the day that just faded into, yep. you know, his older age. Yep. And so in that moment, as much as I'm rooting for him to just say, just let it go because you're the good guy, you do the thing that you're also wanting him to do, kill this asshole. Yeah. But you also see, like, this guy's a human, too. You yeah. Know? And try as he might, your flaws are going to get absorbed by the ones that you you teach. You know, it's it's so wild. Well, and there's that, the, just pointing back to the great storytelling, there's that really good moment where Finney goes to see the, uh, the, 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 what are they called? The, like the, the diamond exchange guy, the, um, Oh, just a pawn shop. Pawn shop. Yeah. Yes. That's what, that was the word I was looking for. The, the guy at the pawn shop, who's another old man. And it turns out these guys knew each other cause they're both in the diamond industry. And so when they were young men, they were sort of, I guess, quote unquote, maybe competing or something yeah. like that. But you get this great moment where this other, uh, man, his age who knew him when he was younger, just sort of loosely implies a history for Finney's character that is kind of like, he, I forget exactly what he says, but I took away from it like, oh, right, he was a young man once too. Mm-hmm. And he was probably the same kind of young man that his boys are. He did some things. He just didn't yeah. make his big mistakes. Yeah. And we all do it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But, and he said something too, almost like, I forget what the line was, but. Because Finney's character went and made a nice jewelry shop, yeah. you know, in the suburbs. Yeah. This guy's in a hole in the wall pawn shop who just—he's the guy that you go to if you're going to steal some diamonds and yeah. need to get money for him. Yeah. You know, he doesn't have the, and so he sort of hints at uh, Albert Finney's character having a naivete towards it. Yes, but not one that's based in actual ignorance. Right, one that's based in like you just played like you didn't know and managed to. To you know, use that as an asset, right? But you knew, you know, yeah. it, it hints to that darkness. Like, yeah, it's, it's so wild, man. Th- I this script is like incredible. Mm. It, 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 I don't know. I, I was like so blown. I, I was really blown away by it. And I think this is one of those things where it's like, sure, this was probably in the script, but this is where you go. Like, this is Lumet like firing on all cylinders. Is the it's somewhere in like maybe the beginning of the third act. There's a section of Philip Seymour Hoffman's story where mostly we're going back through scenes that we've already seen. Mm-hmm. And so whereas, although the movie is cutting back and forth through time constantly, we do kind of like, one of the things he does very well is he lets scenes breathe a little bit. Like mm-hmm. there's, we spend a lot of time in these scenes where people are mostly just talking and interacting with each other. Uh, and and he's kind of developed, he's, he's basically laying out all of this information that we may not have had before. By the time we get to the third act, like Phil Seymour Hoffman's first section of the third act is like moving at a rapid pace between all of these scenes that we've seen kind of over the course of the movie already. And that's, I feel like, that's certainly in the script, and the script is basically taking advantage of itself. Hey, we've slowly laid out all of this information already, so now we can just like run through these scenes, Mm -hmm. and it'll have the tense kind of pacing of something more intense than it actually is. But that's like Lumet seeing that on the page and going like, I know exactly how to do that. Yeah, I know I like, know how to give this uh, a tempo. I know, and, and it becomes from like, I know how to set the visual details the first time we go through all these scenes so that when we rapidly go through them this time, you know exactly where you are every time. Well, and there's also the, the notion that for a couple of them, they definitely just took two cameras, yep. filmed the entire scene, yep. which actually turned out to be four separate scenes. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the way it's edited is we start at the center of each scene and we slowly see 
what happened a little bit before that got them there yep. and what happened a little bit after that informs what's going on in this scene. Totally. And it's that's um and that's you know, and that's one of those things to see a conversation yeah. where you're like, oh man, it looks like Ethan Hawk is is uh you know, really respecting his brother. Yes, yeah. And then we see it from another angle, and we go, "Oh no, his brother's threatening him, and he's afraid of it." Yep. Yeah. And then we go a little bit further back, and it's like, "Oh no, he's actually coming down from a heroin yes. you know, uh, thing." So he's all, but it, it, so you could go back and watch the movie again, and in certain scenes, just be like, "Oh, this is not at all what's going on here," right. even though this is what's happening. That's also one of those things where it's like it makes sense actually that Lumet shot it digitally when you consider all of those things, Mm -hmm. because if he had shot it on film, it would leave so little room for how often you'd have to like pull a small piece out of this scene and move it an hour later and pull a small piece out of that scene and move it an hour earlier. Mm -hmm. It would be like an editing nightmare that in the age of digital kind of allows him to tell this more disjointed story probably more comfortably. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like to not have to, I don't know. That's just interesting to me. That like bring up Pulp Fiction again. One of my favorite gags about that movie is uh, the line that that uh, Honey Bunny says at the Mm, beginning. mm -hmm. It's different at the beginning than it is at the end, and it's close. And that is, at least in my estimation, Tarantino playing with the idea of just like sometimes a filmmaker in the types of movies that he's homaging here didn't think, oh, we're going to need another angle on this. Right. And so sometimes just had to record it again and picked the best performance. Yep. And so he, of course, did it purposefully. It's yeah. just one of his idiosyncrasies. But it, I, I, that, that's something that, that digital prevents from happening. Yeah. So for Lamette to hold on to you know that kind of style. Is yeah, that's really cool. uh, like very impressive. And, and, and I could see why digital would be appealing to mm-hmm. him at that point, too. Like reading that script and going like, it would make sense to shoot this digitally, actually, because we're going to have to do so much maneuvering between all of these mm-hmm. scenes. It's, it's really interesting. And I don't need to set up a giant reel-to-reel camera right. to capture this. Right. I can hide it, you know, in a, in a coffee cup yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. I, and that's what, oh, man. The, uh, when we get to our list later, that is like one of the things I'm, I'm very drove a lot of my choices was just this mm. idea of like i would like to see these guys try and use the the new tricks and tools yes well that's my my number one is that yeah. one we'll get to it yeah 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 this is a movie of the and this will speak to the structure of it and i made this joke to everybody mm-hmm. it's the best subgenre of movies which is the quit while you're ahead quit while you're ahead quit while you're ahead oh my god they're not quitting and oh everything spun out of control yep. you should have quit yeah but you still have a chance so yeah. just quit now while you're ahead, yep. and they're oh they're doing it, they're, oh they're doing it. Yep. And uh, but this one because of the structure of it, we already know that it all goes wrong. Mm-hmm. So we actually watch that in as I'm referring to an outward spiral. We get to watch the moments where we would have done that. Yeah. But because there's a tantalizing lack of information, which is what baits that pace, mm-hmm. you still get that feeling of oh why are you doing this? Yeah. And then it says well here's why they're doing it. And yeah. It's like, oh but how'd you get there? You know. Yeah. That's a really it captures that. Um, I, I mentioned to you when we were watching it, The Gambler Yes, is a James Caan movie, mm-hmm. and he's just a gambler. Yeah. And every time when you're like, all right, you know what? You came out a little bit ahead, stop. Yeah. Puts it all down. You're like, you came out less ahead, but you're still ahead, yeah. stop. Yeah. You, you broke even. <laughs> don't go in. Uh-huh. All right, well, you lost a little bit, so I get that you want to win it back, but just just don't do it. Yeah. Right, you're losing a lot, and everything's on the <laughs> line. Don't he's doing it? You know, and it's yeah. it's frustrating. Like yeah, that. it's a uh, simple plan is that way. It's simple a, plan is yeah. that. If you, I, I have that book. Yeah. Oh, I would like to read that. Read that book because yeah. it's a great adaptation. Yeah. But that book, 
it'll break your heart ten times <laughs> yeah. over. There's there's a few deaths and escalations that aren't in the movie that yeah. that will that will really break your heart. Oh yeah. boy, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> but this is also too we we when we talked about uh, Hell or High Water. Yes, one of the best moments in that movie, and you pointed it out, mm-hmm. was when uh, Ben Foster is dead. Yes, and all Chris Pine has is his drink and a pile of chips. Pile of and chips. It's like, you just your brother's life was sold for that pile pile of chips. That's what you got. You also succeeded at your mission. Yep, that hurts. Yep. so bad. Yep, you got what you wanted. Yep, and that pile of chips is what your brother's entire life amounted to. Yep, it's yeah. And this movie is like that scene over and over, over and, and over, over again. Yeah, it's uh, but in like a re- like a really entertaining way. By the way, too, like we it's haven't really gotten that across yet. Like it, I really enjoyed this movie in like an actual it's just like torturous without being punishing. It's very entertaining. Yeah. I like we you and I were getting a lot of good laughs throughout it's very it. Very funny. Michael Shannon has a great small role in this oh, that yeah. he's very funny in. I, the, <laughs> Which let, we have to pitch that please. idea. One of these days, I want to see an old 1980s style, you know, like the Barbarian Brothers have to babysit these kids or Mr. Nanny. Yes. And it's just Michael Shannon is forced to babysit some rambunctious kids. Uh huh. I need that so bad. Yeah, he could. Kindergarten Cop is another example. Cheaper by the Dozen remake. Yes. Let's do another one. Michael Shannon's a star. Michael Shannon, please do it. Dude. Please do it. Dennis the Menace. Yeah. He's the old man. Yeah. It has to happen. That would be so amazing. It has to happen. Give it time. Yeah, yeah. If he doesn't explode one day in the <laughs> middle of a great monologue, yeah. we'll get to see old man Michael Shatton. Yeah. It'll be worth it. Which nearly happens to Philip Seymour Hoffman like six times yeah. during this movie. His performances, and now knowing that he had addiction yeah. problems, it it's a little bit weirder to watch it. Yeah. But it's uh, physically even. When he's high on cocaine, he is bright red. Yeah. When he is high on heroin, he is pale as a ghost. Dude, I was so... I mean... You know, you see drug use in movies and on TV a lot, uh, and never is quite like the thing that you. It's always might romanticized in, yeah. in a negative way. There's a, a thing about the it. way that he he played high on heroin in this was like really heartbreaking to me because that I mean, I've I've never seen that up close and person like literally up close and personal, but that uh, man I, I know people that have struggled with it, and that is what people. Uh, are are like when they are sort of like coming down off of it, you know that like that sort of quieter, slower, weirder thing. When it comes down to the idea, like people always say, like you know, breaking the physical addiction is one thing, but if yeah. you want to cure, you know, someone with a drug addiction, you have to get to the root of why did you turn to the mm-hmm. drugs in the first place? Mm-hmm. And so his performance actually captures that notion where it's not like you do get the sense that he is, of course, a victim of the dependence to the chemical. Yeah. But you also get the sense like this is a man who's not happy. Yeah. And yeah. this is a man who is brought to this for a certain reason. Yeah. And that's that's a level that we are so often told, but we don't really ever see. Yeah. And I don't know if it took someone who actually i don't know what his troubles were at yeah, that time yeah. or if he had any at that time right if that's what it took to get there maybe that's what it is i, I mean he's just a tremendous actor to yes, begin with yeah but really this whole movie is about that idea of you know we know they make the wrong decisions right at the opening mm-hmm. and so the movie seems to be getting to the heart of what got you to that decision yeah. why did you do that yeah and i think every performance captures it yes you know, and uh and actually i would say especially in marissa tomei totally we get why she's cheating yeah we get why you know just why she does what she does we also get why she reacts certain ways to certain information yeah 
Um, but when you see him high on heroin, you see this and go, yeah, he's doped up, but he's also failing at working through yeah. some shit. Yeah. He, I mean, that is like that moment where he's just sitting on that chair and talking about, um, what is he talking about? He's, t- he's talking about something about like the pieces of a whole. Uh, oh, he says that, um, you know, you should, your life should be, you know, he says some of the parts. Well, he's talking about yeah. his books because we know that he fixed his books a yep. little bit at work. Yeah. And he's being audited. Oh, accounting. And so it looks bad. So, yeah. So he's he's doing accounting. Accounting work is and, the sum of its parts. That's what he yeah, says. Yeah. And he said, that's what I love about accounting yeah. is you move it all around, but at the end of the day, the parts always add up to the whole. Yep. I am not the whole of all of my yeah. parts. And, like, that is a. That's a horror. We often say that like certain movies are, um, the whole is greater than the sum of its yeah, parts, meaning yeah. that it's a bad movie, but it somehow comes together. Or yeah. the the whole is weaker than the sum of its parts, yes. where all these pieces just didn't quite add up. Right. And there's nothing. That's a horrible realization to have about yourself. And there's there's nothing more. There's nothing worse. Your parents can be mad at you, but when they're disappointed, it hurts. Yeah. And when that notion of I am. All of what I am amounts to something that isn't what I should be. Yeah. That's a really heartbreaking thing. And it's clear that, that makes you want to do heroin. Yeah. You know, that makes you want to booze so hard that your wife leaves you and you owe alimony mm-hmm. every month. You know, that's we see both of these guys. And he basically that. says that to his dad, which is like that that is like the scene of the movie to me, is him mm-hmm. and his dad in the backyard kind of having that conversation where he he kind of says like I, uh, his dad says, "Like I know I wasn't the father you wanted me to be," and he says, "I know I wasn't the son you wanted me to be." Mm-hmm. He clearly is like has like very little self worth and s- feels like he uh, is a disappointment to his his father and his family, which is just crushing because otherwise you're like seems like a pretty good smart dude. Yeah. Like he's not wrong when he says to his life his wife like I'm good at what I do. Like, I know all the angles of my job, and that makes me good at what I do. Mm. Doesn't seem like he's wrong about that. Yet, he's cooking the books or whatever the fuck he's doing. and Yeah. It caught up to him. Even my favorite character in the whole movie is barely a character, and it's his drug dealer. Yes, yeah. Who is kind of a a very quiet, but uh, it's, you know, firm if you need to be. All business, but his business happens to be he sells you drugs and he offers you a place to do it. He'll shoot you up. Um, Clean and and safe. Yeah, clean and safe. And he's kind of like a, he's always wearing a silk robe. He's yeah. like a weird effeminate guy, but yeah. he means you know, he means business. And business. what's funny is he ultimately is killed yeah. by not a common, but certainly a likely yes. outcome of his business. Yeah. And so even his character reaches the point of you do things, you, your bad things are going to catch up to you. Yep. And he's a character that has it so figured out, yep. it seems, you know. You're, it's going to catch up. Michael Shannon's character, he's yeah. very much a, uh, you know he's a scumbag. Yeah. But uh, part of his scumbag life, it just caught up to him. What does the old man say to Albert Finney? He says something about this, about uh, evil in the world. He says, like, some people know how to take advantage of it, and other people, what does oh. he say? Yeah, he said, the world is evil. Some of us learn how to like profit off of it. it. Yeah, some yeah. of us learn how to profit off of it. I think that actually might be the line I was searching for before because the second half of that quote is something to the effect of like, and you just, you know, you just turned your back. Right. Like yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. That's on because that like speaks to exactly what you're saying, where it's like, for the most part, everything is catching up to these people. There are the guy, that guy's point is like, there's evil all around us and people are falling victim to it all the time. And a few of us are smart enough to know how to capitalize on that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us will think we're smart enough to capitalize on it. 
and we'll fall flat on our faces and pay for thinking that we could have is like kind of the gist of what he was saying i think if i uh if i'm remembering it you make your bed just leave it yeah i'm getting lost in these quotes and one of my favorite is from and the drug dealer's name is justin oh so uh, actually, I can read this whole thing. This is what Andy says. He says, the thing about real estate accounting yeah. is that you can. You can add down the page or across the page, and everything works out. Every day, everything adds up. The, the total is always the sum of its parts. It's uh, clean. It's clear. Neat. Absolute. But my life, it doesn't add up. Nothing connects to anything else. I'm not the sum of my parts. All my parts don't add up to one. To one me, I guess. And Justin says, get a shrink or a wife. <laughs> yeah. He says, I got a wife. Get a shrink. Get a shrink. All I can think of and uh, is Chris Sarandon's character in Dog Day. Oh, um, he plays. Uh, do you know? I mean, do you know the story of Dog Day? Yes, yeah. I'm How he's trying with to it. get yep. his lover a sex mm-hmm. change. Well, yep. Chris Sarandon plays his lover. Yeah, and he's very much. Uh, you know, it's Mother's Day. Leave me alone. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, but he plays it in a way that's very real and very funny. But he plays that sort of a character that would say things like, "Yeah, get a shrink, get a shrink." Yeah. Uh yeah, I can't I really can't remember the follow up to that line, but I I think that's kind of the Yeah, I think that's kind of the gist of that line. It's just like, listen, some people figure out how to capitalize on it and pretty much everybody else ends up dead because of it. Yeah. The um the the other thing that these quotes pointed out to me was he says to uh Ethan Hawke, Michael Shannon's character yeah. says to Ethan Hawke, "You mind if I call you Chico?" Yeah. He's like, "Well, people call me Andy." He's like, "Well, Chico, we got to do this." Yeah. And then when he meets uh Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, yeah. he says, you mind if I call you Groucho? Yeah. And because he's a grouchy guy. Uh-huh. But it's also, you know, that's two of the Marx brothers. Yeah. Which it's very funny. The uh, almost the awareness of how bad they are at crime. Yes. That Michael Shannon, who is clearly pretty good at crime. Yeah. Uh, is just saying, like, you guys are a bumbling duo yes. of comedians. <laughs> yeah. Um, they never labeled a Harpo. Yeah. You know, so or wait, did he say Harpo or Groucho? No, he said Groucho. You're right. Was it Groucho? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mind if I call you? I mean, that's funny because he says, uh, yeah, "Can I call you Chico?" My friends call me Andy. He's like, "All right, Chico." And then when he says, "You don't look happy," mind if I call you Groucho? Uh, he says, "No, I don't mind." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just immediately goes yeah. with it. Sorry, ain't gonna pay the bills, Chico. Yeah, so good, dude. Michael Shannon is great in this movie. That dude is made out of like. Somebody just put all of the candles together and made the most densely packed <laughs> candle and just carved his face. It's insane. He's he was so funny. He in this. belongs on Mount Rushmore just because he's already made of stone. Yeah, yeah. He, have you seen uh, um, what was that called? The Seth Rogen Christmas movie. I have not. Michael Shannon plays a weed dealer in that, oh and you need to see this version of Michael Shannon. It's not a great movie, but you need to see I'm sure it's the kind Michael of movie Shannon that I can scenes. Enjoy oh yeah, a doubt. yeah, yeah. Have you seen Let's Go to Prison? No. He plays the white supremacist leader in the jail. Oh yeah, oh yeah, he does. He's and he has he has a a great line where uh, uh, and it's actually leads to a Will Arnett great line. Yeah, he's like, "You remind me of my dad," and uh, he's like, "Oh, your dad was probably a nice guy." I killed my dad. <laughs> it's like, well, you didn't you didn't kill him with kindness, did you? You killed him with a hammer. <laughs> and then uh as soon as he says that, one of the other cronies in Michael Shannon's group is just like, Oh, like that Beatles song. And then Michael Shannon stabs him with a fork. <laughs> it's incredible. That's awesome. 
Oh, it's so good. Uh, yeah, he plays like a magical weed dealer in that uh, Seth Rogen Christmas movie. Yeah, it's great because he's like he's literally doing the Michael Shannon thing of like everything he says is like kind of scary. Yeah, yeah. But he's like handing you a joint while he says it. Yeah, it's yeah. really funny. You know what? I take back what I said about Jamie Foxx and Baby Driver. Huh? Two people can do. Is he being funny or oh, being terrifying? Yes. As good as Jamie Foxx, and the other one is Michael, Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon, one hundred percent. Yeah, he does that. That's yeah. Like, ugh. Yeah, I um. Before the Devil Knows You're Dead is is a movie that so many people don't seem to... I, I don't want to say they don't seem to know about right. it. Right. But it's not considered... You know, when we think of 2007, it really rarely ever comes up yeah. on the list. And it's an incredible film. I really liked this. It's an incredible final film. For yeah. An incredible filmmaker. Yeah. But it, it's... Yeah, it is a movie movie. It really does utilize everything it got has. So, you know, I it's a weird thing to say about old directors because I feel like we say this about old directors a lot. And so clearly it's just like, no, they're just like they're good at what they do. But like so much I mean, it's his final film and there's so much energy in this movie. There's so it you know, I don't know, there is there is a um there's a maturity to this movie though as far as oh, like absolutely. the themes that it's addressing and the performances he gets out of these actors. Uh this feels like the kind of thing that could only come from somebody that um, is maybe towards the end of their life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Somebody that has like a lifetime of experience There's to sort of. To it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure the script spoke to him. Absolutely. Uh, the moment with Albert Finney where we realize like, no, he is also capable of murder. Yes. He, could, he can get to a point where he could murder his own son. Yep. And, you know, that, that comes from. I, I think that any aging man can identify with that idea and he probably wanted to show like hey your mistakes will resonate you have to mitigate them you have to make right by them you have to do you know good because you're the way you are is going to affect the things you touch no matter yeah. who you are yeah and you know a lot of times and I, and really and I, I keep saying men 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 but i think anybody can realize Nobody does something for no reason unless there's something wrong with them. You know? <laughs> right, like, right. Even when someone's being an asshole, they're, they they got there somehow. Yeah, there's some motivation. That's a huge wisdom, and that seems to be the piece of wisdom that every old person says is, you know, be nice and don't judge people. That, like That's, that's yeah. what you always hear to some extent. Yeah. I think this movie speaks to that, and an old man director can get that point across. Yeah, yeah. Man, did I like this movie. I, dude, I... Those Phil Seymour Hoffman scenes are just insane. Mm. They're so good. Like, Ethan Hawke is great in this movie. Really, really good. Their brother dynamic is so believable. Uh, And he's a great younger brother. Like, I was Mm -hmm. actually surprised, because, like, I think of Ethan Hawke now. So I think of the uh, an oh, older yeah. Ethan Hawke, you know. I don't think of 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 this Ethan Hawke, and he plays a great younger brother. To and Phil Seymour Hoffman plays a very good commanding older brother. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, those scenes where he's like basically having meltdowns are 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 out of this world. I mean, he what a fucking performer! That guy was insane. He was so good. He's a he's another one that was a he was a workhorse. Yeah, apparently back in the day before any of the people that we love now were famous, when you went to a script reading, oftentimes an actor could get a job as a reader. Oh, okay. Meaning, um, you know, a director hires you to come in and just read the other half of yep. the script while people audition. Mm-hmm. And apparently at every movie that you've ever loved before Philip Seymour Hoffman was famous, he was the reader. Whoa. Because he just took the work. Yeah. And he knew, I'm going to get, yep. this is going to make me better, this is going to make yep. me better. And so he's just done every scene every which way. 
But also when you hear celebrities talk about like, oh, yeah, I got that movie role. And, and I wish I could come up with one. It's all from Marin, too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where they go, oh, you know what? I got that role because I had a really good scene partner in the audition. Uh, it was Philip Seymour Hoffman. Wow. He was Interesting. That good. Yeah. yeah. That's how uh, Harrison Ford got uh, Han Solo. Really? Yeah. Well, he had been in American Graffiti. Like, what is this, an audition? Yeah. <laughs> he had been in American Graffiti, and him and Lucas hit it off. And so when Lucas was auditioning people for the other roles in the movie, he just asked Harrison Ford if he wanted to make a few extra bucks and be the nice. reader. And so he kept reading the Han Solo part against all the Luke Skywalkers and against all the Princess Leias. And by the time they got through, like, Kurt Russell and a bunch of people that they auditioned for Han Solo, Man. I they would were... never trade. I would never trade uh, Harrison Ford. I know. But if there's an alternate universe I know. where Kurt Russell got the role, I'd like to see I it. know. Uh, Mostly because I'd like to see his final scene in Force Awakens yeah. by old man Kurt <laughs> yeah, exactly. Russell. Yeah. That would be heartbreaking. Oh, my God. But so that was how I got the role. It was just like by the end of it, they were like, well, you're just Han Solo to us now. Like we just do. You just are Han Solo because you've been playing him. Like, but I don't want to do this. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you're hired. Sorry, dude. You're hired and you'll never live it down. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. You're going to be that one for it. That's a, you know, who else has that story? Yeah. McLovin. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. He went in and they were like, wait, you're a cocky nerd. Yeah. Because he was just a fucking punk who yep. looked like a nerd and had a lisp. Yeah. <laughs> he was perfect for McLovin. Yeah. I love uh, the idea that Harrison Ford's career was like, no, Yahan Solo, you're going to be him for the rest of your life. We're actually going to write a way cooler part for you and make three of those movies too, yeah. but Yahan Solo, motherfucker. <laughs> four. <laughs> That's right, yeah. They made four of those movies. Yeah. Three and a half, we'll say, because I defend <laughs> the fourth. Yeah. But, you know, we the fifth is scheduled for 2020. I but know. I don't know how old Glassbones is going to hold up. I think that guy's going to crash three more planes in that time, and <laughs> one of them's going to kill him. Yeah. That's, I, I love you, Harrison Ford, yeah. but you know what? You're at that age where let your kids drive you around. Dude, just stay out of planes. Stay out of planes. There's stay a pilot. Step one, stay out of planes. There's young pilots. Yeah. You can hop on. You can afford first class. Yeah. You're Harrison Ford. They'll let you, you know. Yeah. But then again, you got Tom Cruise who's like, tie me to the plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, God damn it. Yeah. Give a stuntman a job. Yeah. Uh, do you have further thoughts on Before the Devil Knows You're Dead? There's something that popped in my head a minute ago, and I forgot. Um Well, you know what I, I would like to talk about their brother dynamic. Oh yeah, something that you said about Ethan Hawke stuck with me is yeah. he's always playing, for the most part, a pretty confident character. Yes, and you see, you know, and he's an adult in this movie. Uh-huh. But as soon as him and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman are across, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman is I used to call him, <laughs> and uh, so when <laughs> Ethan Hawke and. Psh, <laughs> are when eh, and <laughs> are next to each other. No, that's actually cheap to Ethan because I think he's one of the great. No, that's amazing, and I'm never going to refer to either of them in any <laughs> other way again. Yeah. But when the two of them have to act across from one another, they captured something that you see in real life siblings. Yes. where when they're far apart, and as soon as they get back together, it's like I can see you as ten year olds. Yes, I can see exactly how you did this as ten year olds, and yep. in this one, um. Andy was probably the guy who was like, I want to do this. And little Hank was like, yeah, Hank was a, yes. was a yep. Ethan Hawke. And little Hank would be like, no, I don't want to. And he'd punch the desk. Yeah. Like, come on, do it. And he's yeah. like, you don't, you don't want to be a pussy. And be like, yeah, yeah you're right. I don't want to be a yep. pussy. And you can see it in 100% of their scenes. But uh, once again, uh, due to the structure of it, you don't see it until later in the scenes right. after it's had some time to simmer. Yeah. That- it's... I loved the way that dynamic unfolded. And I, I I was so impressed with how, I don't know, 
I, I guess I don't have a brother, so I, mm. I, maybe that's why I can't imagine it, but I can't imagine being hired to act in something and being able to create that dynamic without it actually without it being, being there. inherently so when you there. you watch a child actor and you're like, you, what have you experienced to make you get this so right. hard? Yeah. And I don't know if either of them have brothers or anything. I, yeah, I have no idea. Apparently they were old friends, so okay. you know, and they're both you know really good actors. Very good, yeah. What's the, um? why can't I think of his name? There's a play, it's got two cowboys in it. But um, there's a play that's got two cowboys in it. Yes. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance no, 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 Kid. Um, and I'm gonna get to because I forget the guy who wrote it, but I know who wrote it. And I know he was in Midnight Special, and I always forget his name. It is Sam Shepard, and Sam Shepard wrote. Oh, what's the oh. play called? Oh, wait, with two cowboys? Yeah, and uh, they're two different characters. Yeah. Oh, are you thinking of um? <sighs> It's like something West. Yes, it's something West. I yeah, think I don't think they're cowboys, are, are they? they? I don't know. Maybe I just thought of that. Yeah, I don't think they're way, cowboys. Yeah, there's two distinct characters and a famous story from East one of, of the West. What is that called? I'll look it up. Keep yeah. going. One of the famous stories from that is that John C. Riley and Psh were uh, <laughs> Joker and Psh were uh, were in that together, and on alternating nights they'd play the other one's part. Yes, right. And you know, it certainly credits both of them as great actors, but. You know, in this situation, Philip Seymour Hoffman, he just had an intuitiveness of it that I, I true think West, could, true West. That's it. He could uh, <laughs> slow West. That's the one. <laughs> that's a, literally that was all Michael I could Fassbender, think of. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but his ability to kind of have this insight to just find what is driving a character is what I think fuels scenes like that where he becomes the big brother. Totally. And then, you know, by the end of the movie, we find out that the only reason he acted like the big brother was because as the older of the two, even though he felt like an outcast, it was a situation in which he could wield some power. Yep. And, you know, that's 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 life theme right now, I think, especially here in America, is the idea <laughs> yeah. of some people are just going to have power that other people don't. The yep. question now is, what are you going to do with yeah, it? Yeah, how do you wield it? How do you wield it in a way that's respectful and can also fix the problem? Yep. You know, and that's something that we all struggle with. Yeah, and this really shows how just any bit of power can really it, it can go either way. You have to you, you got to keep it in check, especially if you're a coward, because that's yes, like what exactly. the, happens in this movie. Is he? It's not even clear what he's been doing, but he's been like cooking his books or something. They kind of reveal at the end something about evading some taxes, and he's got mm -hmm. a couple like dead, not dead, but like fired people still on his payroll that he's that are cashing checks, which is probably just him. Uh, and so, like, he's been doing this thing that's very illegal to live a lifestyle that he wants to live and and prove to his father that he's doing good and he's the son that he can be proud of. Uh, but when the chips come crashing down and the IRS is there to audit him and his books and he knows they're going to find inconsistencies he panics and he does the cowardly thing which is well let me find a way to just have enough money to run away yeah. that's literally what he wants just to get do, out of here yeah. to just run away uh but he's so cowardly he can't even be the one to do that thing mm. he bullies his brother who he knows he has that power over to do the thing who himself is too much of a coward to do the thing so he hires a criminal that he knows to do the thing. Mm -hmm. It's it's just like cowardice all the way down. And I have to, I mean, that has to come from their dad. So I wonder, like, do, can you think of something that's in the movie that is like an example of their dad being cowardly? I'm trying Absolutely. to think of, yeah, I'm trying There's to. two examples. Yeah. Um, the first one is um, 
And and just because I think the act of fighting is cowardly, yes. but I think it is framed there when he slaps his son. In the oh face, yeah, yeah. Um, the right and and I get it. I probably would hit mm-hmm. him too. Um, but because yeah, he he says, you know, are he, you even really my dad? Yeah, he like questions that his parentage. Yeah, and he just gets up and slaps yeah. him, and it's. It's a moment where you get where the dad's coming from, yes. but it is a failure. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That is something that should be talked through, worked through. Or right. No communication is like the yeah. Yeah. It's it's just that's just, and then of course at the end, it's a, uh, it, it's actually kind of a weird duality because the, the father still shows that he's better than the other two because he kills he kills him himself. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. come up with some other way to do right. it. He does it himself, but. The real thing to do would be I'm turning you in, right? And I'm right. going to deal with, you know, just being traumatized by this whole fucking process. Yeah. So the cowardly way out is I'm going to kill you, and yeah. I'm just going to, you know, bring bring that what it fuck may. you, I'm out. Fuck yeah, exactly. And so you do get that sit yeah. down from him. That's and true. Whereas the dad's cowardly action feels the most justified. Right. It calls into question in me, you know, like I just said a minute ago, where I go, I would have hit him too. Right. And. You know, I think what it's purporting is like you're gonna want to get there. Don't get there. Yeah, don't you know, get like, there. Don't get there. Yeah. And if you get there, don't don't give in. You don't. Know? Yeah. And, don't act. And I think that's a fight that anybody, um, by our demographic, we are naturally just going to have power. Yeah. And that is a fight. The, the fight the fight of understanding when it is not required of you to issue understanding <laughs> yeah. is something that is stone cold bred into our DNA as yes. white American males. Yes. And that's part of it. And so, here we go again. Yeah. We see it now in government, the yeah. death throes of that idea mm-hmm. passing, mm-hmm. where it's, you are, you are now going to have to answer for your power, yep. and you're going to have to make terms with how it was bestowed upon you and what yep. you're going to do with it. Yep. And that's a hard fight. It sucks sometimes. And what you have done with it. And what you have done with it, yeah. exactly. And, yeah. and what you can do with it to to make up for that and yeah. to, to yeah. help fix the problem. Uh-huh. And... I think that's somewhat of the thesis behind this. Definitely. Sorry, you know. Well, because there's even a couple of moments where it's like, you guys could be done with this. Yeah. You could be out. And they, none of them choose to be out. They make these weird, you know, they, everything starts because of their cowardly decisions that they make to begin with. And then for some reason they decide like, oh, well, now's the time to get like really, pow- like now is the time to power trip and be criminal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they like, Almost swing. They're like saloon doors that swing back too hard the other direction to like course correct. Well, the only time they ever quote unquote man up is when their backs against the wall, right? And it's like if you just if you just stood up and, and yeah. did your piece, yeah, when you had the chance, we wouldn't even you you wouldn't be near the wall. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Now your your backs against it, and you've got to make decisions based in fear. Then you will be forced to make decisions based in fear. Yeah. It is as true as it ever was. Hundred percent. It's and it's a losing. It's not a losing battle. It's a winning battle that. Is so hard not to lose, on <laughs> yes. a, even on a personal level. It's so difficult. Yeah. Uh, I'd also like to speak to the music. Oh yeah. I don't actually. I don't know who did the music. Me I should probably look, look that, that up. up. But what's cool about it is it's, it's music that it's has, not like ever present. Not ever present, but it has. It's very heavy on the piano. Yes. And it has that old, almost like a soap operatic feel. Oh yeah. It, it, it's. So much of the music that we hear now, because of the way that just the trends of it, it feels we we've gone beyond orchestral to abstract. Yes. Um, when you look at the beautiful score for something like Inception, which mm-hmm. is very much uh, expanded upon in Dunkirk. Yep. Um, it is music. Yep. Uh, there is an orchestra there, but 
it is true. There's an abstract so, feeling. Yeah, there's a little more like impressionistic or something Junkie like XL that. Junkie XL attaching himself to Hans Zimmer from right. superhero movies is the perfect example of that because he's not playing any instruments. Right. I mean, he is uh, that wonderful Wonder Woman thing. Yeah. Is, is, it's, uh, I saw a gift today that was like anytime you hear the Wonder Woman, the Wonder Woman theme, yeah. and it plays that over and over to just every moment from Bill and Ted where they. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which when we watched Wonder Woman, that kept happening where it's yeah. like, is this the? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We this is gonna be it. Yeah, it's great, but uh, we there. It's much more about tones and droning, and, yeah, and yeah, and it works. So this is still musical, mm-hmm. but it's not orchestral the way John Williams is. So it feels personal. It reminded me of the score to a movie I watched recently called Birth. Oh, the, I've um, not seen that yet. The Jonathan Glazer movie. Yeah, it's good, but it, it has that like Nicole Kidman. Yes, Nicole Kidman and Creepy Kid, who used to be Creepy Kid and everything for like five years, and then he disappeared from being in movies. What? Yeah. I'm going to have to look it up. It's good. It's good. But it's, you know, it it has just like kind of a busy piano riff that that feels like you're watching a show. It feels like a noir kind of theme to me a little bit. It really does. It also has that sort of home drama feel to it. Yeah, it's true. Um, This is, you know, remember everything sounded like American Beauty for a while? Yes, yeah. So, But this kind of goes away from that. It has a little bit of that to it, but it also has like a Murder, She Wrote feel. Yeah. Where it's just, you know, someone playing a good old crunchy song it's yeah it's a good score and i meant to look it up and i got carried away well it's like uh you know it, it definitely feels of a piece with this sort of like crime world that he's building right? yes um which is so interesting that it's a it does have the feel of like oh this is one of those crime movies it takes place in a world of crime so of course the music was carter burwell who's carter burwell Fargo, Imbrew, Jesus Christ, John Malkovich, Twilight, yeah. Anomalisa. Um, he's basically yeah. every Coen Brothers thing yeah. until yeah. they yeah. got what's his name. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. This has a Coen-y feel to it for sure. Big Lebowski, Psycho yeah. Three, Doc <laughs> Hollywood, <laughs> A Knight's Tale, The Alamo. Oh, he wrote "We Will Rock You." What was that? Uh, it was that was a joke oh, about a Knight's for, Tale. I've, I've never seen a Knight's Tale. But I do remember and, that that yeah. was the thing. Yeah. yeah. So you know, but yeah, of course it was Carter Burwell. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. That totally makes sense. But Fargo. Yeah. He he didn't do the music. He was a music department, but he yeah. worked on Fargo. Uh, that totally makes sense. That. It has that Coney noir kind of thing mm-hmm. where it's it's not quite a noir, but that it's very influenced by that. It's mm-hmm. you know. Um yeah, that totally makes sense. I really liked the music in this. And it's it that is the other thing is it's um I feel like we don't get movies like this that much anymore. It's very sparsely used. It's it's not yeah. a movie that has a lot of music in it. It's mostly focused on the performances and the... the and it's used in the few moments where we're actually... Because this is pretty dialogue heavy. Yeah. Uh, the dialogue and the editing tell the story. Yes. The visuals capture it, but they don't really tell it so much. Right. Um, you know, in terms of just they know where to... They know where yeah. to point yeah. for... To get you know the right face. Yep. We capture these good actors. But uh, those are for the moments that are sort of transitional. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You see it where somebody's driving somewhere. Yes, And then yeah. the music swells, but it's a moment where it's like, he's got to get there fast to retrieve his CD <laughs> from, the, uh, you know, from the, the car rental place. Yeah. I actually, I watching it this time, because it's been a while since I've seen it, I thought that when, I, for some reason in my head, I thought that when he was like, I think I left a CD here, they were like, yeah, you also left this mustache and this wig. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was going to be that. That's but so funny. But it wouldn't have been out of place, because there Not is a little bit of humor to it. Oh, yeah. Um, it's it's the opposite of comedy. Uh, I'm sorry, tragedy plus time equals comedy, because we actually see these comical moments that exist before we put the time in. Right, and then when we see what happened, you're like, oh, that's actually just a tragedy. Yes, yeah, yeah. it kind of dissolves that from the structure. Yeah. I love that. Uh, I I really liked this movie, and we had the uh, 
two of the, of the three most recent Aunt Mays. Yes, we did. It, so that's kind of... Yes, we did. Uh, did they ever get a scene together? They sure did not. I was going to say at the play, but she's not actually there at the play. That's just Ethan Hawke and uh, uh, Amy Ryan. The play, there's... Is she by her hospital bed? Ooh, maybe. Yeah. There might be a scene with yeah. double Aunt Mays. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Hell yeah. Kind of weird to see Aunt May getting shot. That's Uncle Ben's territory. That's true. But, you know, that's true. Yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, well, Uncle Ben gets to go on his own with great power comes great responsibility yeah. journey in this movie. Yeah, that's true. That's uh, that's what's this is of that timeless Spider-Man rule. <laughs> yeah. With great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. And if you do shit wrong, you're going to have to answer for it. Oh, yeah. What was that great line that Phil Seymour Hoffman said? How are we going to get this sh- shit that you got on my shoe off or something like that? Oh, he said, uh, well, because well, he's bullying Ethan Hawke. Yeah. This is when Ethan Hawke says... Um, I forgot someone did see me go with the oh, robber. Right. Yeah, it was yeah. the robber's girlfriend, and yeah. she has a brother, and he wants to extort us. Yeah. And uh, he says, all right, well, let's invite him to the apartment, and we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah. He's like, well, what are we going to do? He's like, well, figure it out. We just got to get the shit that you're dropping off my shoes. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Something like that. Like, and But it's it's him passing the responsibility of the idea of, like, I did all of the things right that I was supposed to right. do. You, you fucked, fucked up. up. And but at the same time realizing like if I don't clean this up, yeah. he's taking he's trying we're to take the responsibility, fucked. but yeah. without actually taking the responsibility, right. which is you we're have both to do fucked, this. but it's your fault. And so you're you gonna, have to fix yeah. it, and I'm going to make it look like me. And yeah. he's bullying him with that. Yeah, man. And then he goes on that just rampage of Holy shooting people. Holy shit! But even there though, and you said it when we were watching it when he shoots those two people, the faces he makes before both he, times it you can tell it hurts. You him. have to watch him process what he's doing mm-hmm. and going through. It is fucking intense. It's real. Yeah, it's real. Yeah. But the one thing that I would want to call a flaw is what we talked about a couple times is just when the dad goes to suffocate him. Yes. I'm rooting against that because yeah. it just you know, it almost feels like too much. Yeah. I'm um, also that suffocating someone with a pillow is something I have a hard time buying anyway. <laughs> but here it works. And, yeah. Uh, He's already at death's door for yeah, the most exactly. part. It's, yeah. it's just one of those like, yeah. do I want to watch a, a 15 minute strangulation? Right. You know, I yeah. don't want to do that. Yeah. But that moment, because it's a, a weakness, you go, oh man, you're, but it also is the answer to everything, which is, you know, the, even when it's not intentional abuse. Yeah. Your shortcomings have have, and and that's that's a shitty fact of life is you are going to have shortcomings and you might not even be wrong but they're yep. going to radiate yeah and we just see the dad's shortcoming finally coming forward I mean you know of course we don't know what their childhood was completely like, right but yeah yeah that moment sucks to watch because I'm like I want him to say it's okay and then call the cops yeah but it's right that he kills him in in the truth of the movie yeah yeah and yeah yeah it hurts it's. The thing you just, it's like you said before, it's regardless of the actual actions all of these people take, we do by that point in the movie have sympathy for all of them. Mm-hmm. So it is hard to watch, you know, uh, not even just because of the father son dynamic of it all, which adds a whole other layer to it, but just we have sympathy for Hoffman's character. We don't want to see him die, mm-hmm. uh, especially not in that way. Go down that you, path. Yeah, no, we don't, yeah. Because he, I mean, once again, we he is presumably innocent throughout this whole right. thing, short of whatever seeds he may or may not have planted right. back in the day. Well, did plant, may or may not have been intentional. Yes, yeah. Very well could have been. Yeah. I think it suggests that there might, may have been, uh-huh. you know. It's just, and that also speaks to the, the idea, too. Uh, to once again, make it about men. One of the hardest things for every 
man to pass on to the next generation is the idea of is the idea that that you are having strength while recognizing the idea that the next generation what you view as weakness is just due to your old patriarchal values right and it's actually just an evolution of it yeah. so I imagine that his dad, being of a war veteran age, yeah. probably had a tough guy thing. Yeah, that was you. You know, he he helped put that idea in their head that you have to be the caretaker, you yep. have to do this, and you can't run from it. And yep. you know, everybody's dad feels like that to them a little bit. Totally, and every dad sees the next generation as a weakening. Yeah, and it's just it's hard not to see it like that. And I could see their dad being of that type. Totally. And it's a weird poisoning of, of their life then too, because yeah. you're, you know, you're implanting that so early. Yeah. God damn it. I, hmm. This is one of those movies where I don't, I don't know if you, I'm sure you pick up on this. There are like some movies that we watch together and I like watch the movie and I enjoy the movie. And there are other movies we watch together that I like participate in. Mm-hmm. I get like very actively like, Oh yeah. I like lean in. I'm like oh, very yeah. reactive. This was one of those movies. I just like it's structured to draw you in yeah. like that. It's so good. Yeah, I have the credit to Isaac, who will probably hear this. Yes, and you know Isaac. I know Isaac. Hello, and, Isaac. Um, he's the reason that I saw this movie okay. ever. He always talked about it. Yeah, and he recommends a lot of movies, and usually they're fine or whatever. Yeah. But yeah. you know, he also loves Big Bang Theory. <laughs> fuck you for that. Um, but, hey, by the way, fuck you for that, Isaac. Yeah, fuck you for that. But when Isaac goes, yo. Yeah. This movie's good. I always know like yeah. it's going to be good. And this was one that he always got on me about. And I was talking to him about it today. And he said, this is one of those movies that I just... He's like, I, I someone was like, I want to go see this. And I'd never heard of it and just went. He's like, ever since that movie, he goes, I don't really watch indie trailers yeah. because I just want to go in blind. Yeah, yeah. Because it was such an, oh shit, no one knows about this. <laughs> yeah. It's so fucking good. Yeah. So thank you to Isaac. But thank you, I think Isaac. that describes the cultural uh totally the the way it's been received yeah. is nobody doesn't like this movie and everyone kind of forgot about it. Yep. Yeah, it's nobody yeah, it just is not talked about and it it uh very much should be. I think this is like Well, it's a movie that how do you sell it? Yeah. You know, I, it's not really sellable right. unless you know you're like, oh, this looks like you know, oh well, yeah. Sydney Lumet film. But even at that point, I don't want to say who was he, but the right. movie-going crowd wasn't really that interested in. Right, you know. it. I, this movie is that really said, good. This one, much like a Hell or High Water, is the kind that I think I could recommend to anybody, to really any any adult. Yeah, you know, like I, this is the kind of movie that, like my my grandmother, ninety one, yeah. she would watch this movie and be really into it. I think so. You know, yeah, and just would totally dig it. Yeah, it's uh it's one of those. Again, it's part of just the brilliance of the structure. It's very. Yeah, enrapturing it. It just mm-hmm. really pulls you into it. It's, it's a uh, good story. Yeah, yeah. It, and see, that's what it is. Is we always talk about story and plot. Uh-huh. This is a really, really, really great plot that ties in flawlessly to a really great story. Yeah, yeah. and that's cool. Yeah, you know, oftentimes you get so much story with little plot, and that works. Or so much plot and no story, and that works. But to see them both cranked up to ten without overpowering one another is is a special thing indeed. Totally. Yeah. Fucking R.I.P. Sidney Lumet. This was, uh, I I was, man, I've seen this dude's first movie, this dude's last movie, and The Wiz. And and holy shit, do I like this guy's movies. I I bet it is, actually, because I think it's in the 70s, which I think would come somewhere square right in the middle. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What else was I going to say? There was one more thing I was going to say. Yeah, whatever. I don't know. It's all right. Yeah, this is a... And you know, and to the transformative nature of acting, 
Albert Finney is the only person who looks like Albert Finney. And until we looked him up, we kept calling him Bobo Brian Cox. Yeah, because we um, didn't know his name. And meanwhile, he's just as famous. He's yeah, he's but Albert he disappeared Finney. Disappeared into it. He he was. He's, he's in so fucking good. Minority Report. Yep. He's in fucking. Oh, I love this Nose guy. Nose Crossing. Yeah, ties him to the Coens. But that's a. Uh, and he, and he doesn't look any different than he no. ever looked. Yet he's so good in this that he's dead. Yep. He's just dead. Yep. Oh man. And he does kind of look like Brian Cox. He does look like Brian Cox, yeah. but they're also kind of they they own the the seventy to ninety racket. If, <laughs> yeah. Of, you know, mostly because they made it. Yeah. But he, yeah. Because uh, they're still here. Because they're still here and still going. And Rip Torn does too many drugs <laughs> to actually put together the greatest performance. <laughs> he does. Uh, highly recommend. We talked about huh? this. I don't think you've ever seen it. Huh? Rolling Kansas. I have not. Uh, that it's written and directed by Thomas Hayden Church. Oh, good. And it's probably my favorite stoner movie. Yeah. And uh, Rip Torn just plays a crazy old man who drinks wine spodioti. Oh, Rip Torn's in this movie? Yeah, Rip Torn's <laughs> as himself. Yeah. And just so you know, wine spodioti is fermented fox piss. <laughs> but uh, it's a very funny movie. It sounds funny. You, you would very much like oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, Oh, yeah. Uh, Brian Cox played Churchill er- earlier this year. Oh, in right. Churchill. Uh. And going back... I think that's the one role that you couldn't swap out Albert Finney for. Okay. Just because yeah. he's not fat enough. <laughs> okay. So fair. Cox gets the edge because he's fat old yeah, man. There you go. Yeah. Good old Coxie. Uh, Good old Coxie. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Brian Cox, BC, because that's when he was born. <laughs> eh, and psh. He's old. Yep. Eh, psh. Yeah. And uh, then, of course, uh, the other actor in this movie, Mmms. Oh, yeah. It's Michael Shad. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, and Albert Finney is Albert Finney as fuck. <laughs> the initial game. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I fucking loved. I loved this movie. I, I can't recommend it to people enough. And I think it's very available. Um, just nobody has seen it. Uh, Nobody's seen it. And if you and have, you so stop many talking about have it, it on you a two start DVD. Yeah. Somebody bought like somebody bought a what movie did this sell on a not Theodore Rex it sold with um, probably along came Polly it was probably yes. like some yeah, like exactly. Phil Seymour Hoffman double feature answer, yeah, yeah. along came no and actually I was thinking of along came a spider oh okay yeah it's that's just totally one of better. those movies yes, yeah that's like, absolutely would be with this it totally could be lumped like looking at the cover of this movie I would put it on expecting that and yes. then be like oh oh shit yeah oh shit yeah. this is legit yeah yeah before the devil broken. knows you're dead yeah it's uh, it's like the best episode of uh, Better Call Saul that uh, you haven't I've seen. I've still yet. never seen Better Call Me Saul. Me neither, actually. I'm uh, making an assumption about what that show probably is like based on. Breaking it's a lot Bad. like Breaking Bad in terms yeah. of the idea that by the end of Breaking Bad, I want Walter White to die. Yeah, and I totally feel bad for that. Yes, yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I, I feel bad that people would want him to die, but he deserves it. Like, right. It's, yeah. But once, and we spoke about this when we talked about Okja. Yes. When you properly motivate your characters, you can have them behave in literally any way you want. Yep. And if you properly motivate them, we will buy it. Yep. It doesn't matter if it's in a futuristic space world or if it is underground in a coffin. If you properly motivate their actions, you can tell any story. Yeah. But that's the rub. Yeah. 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 That's, that's that's hard to do. Yep. And th- I mean, let alone then to do that by going like, hey, we're just going to rearrange all the information so that mm-hmm. you care in kind of like a different way. Uh, th- yeah, this is a an so extremely impressive We didn't movie. say his name, but Kelly Masterson. Kelly Masterson is the, the writer of... It was, yeah. I'm sorry, it was disappointing when I found out that you were a man because I wanted to root for that. Yeah. But it's also, whatever, great work. You well, it also makes a lot script. of sense. It's a, it's a pretty male-centric. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, also wrote, uh, uh, what did you tell me he also wrote? Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer, yeah. 
And the uh, only other things he wrote were Killing Kennedy, uh-huh. which was a uh, it was a uh, TV movie starring Rob Lowe, oh. John F. Kennedy, and uh, another one called Good People. All right, and it's a screenplay by credit. Mm. Um, so it was based on a novel. So he adapted mm. a novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's James Franco. Oh, and it's directed by Henrik Ruben Gens. Yeah, I'm f- familiar with. I'm not. Oh, listen to the plot, though, of Good People. Please. Discovering a stash of cash in their dead tenant's apartment, a couple in debt take the money and find themselves the target of a deadly adversary, the thief who stole it. It's Yeah, yeah. sounds like it was written it's by this simple guy. simple plan. Yeah. It's uh, no country for old men. It's, yeah. Yeah. Into it. Uh, so we wanted to celebrate some more uh, past filmmakers, uh, since that's one of the things we're doing here, not just celebrating 2007, the greatest year for movies in our lifetime. Uh, we also wanted to celebrate some more past filmmakers, so we're going to do a top five list of um, dead directors, I guess. Uh, uh, I think the way that to tie it into Romero that I said was uh, was directors that you'd like to bring back yes, from the dead to yes. make another movie. That's right. Uh, yeah, and that actually, I mean, that did kind of lead me to my choices. It. It also made me realize how new a media movies are, actually, mm-hmm. having to figure this out. Because um, most, and, you know, this is partially just because I haven't seen a lot of older movies, but still, uh, most directors that I would put on this list are, are still alive. They're not, <laughs> they're not dead yet. Uh, so it was a little bit of a challenge to, um, to figure out how to do this list, but that was sort of the criteria I came down to, was just like, who would I want to ex- see like experiment with modern technology? Who would I want to see use motion capture? Who would I want to see shoot a 3D movie? Who would I want to see have access to digital where they could let an actor perform a scene over and over again? Like who, mm. who are the people that I would want to see do those things? That informed some entries on my list. I think also some of my entries were just the idea of like, I would like to see how this I would like to see how thematically this person would play into modern sensibilities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would like to see what ideas they didn't get to put out yet. Um, yeah. Like right now, Twin Peaks, the, mm-hmm. it's the best thing on TV. Yeah. I, I cannot believe how rich and dense and just so true to what David Lynch always does. Yeah. It, it's so perfect. And so many people thought it was going to be a uh, just a retread for the sake of you know getting some money to do anything at all. Yeah. But instead, it's it is that like he needed the money, so he called it <laughs> Twin Peaks. But then just somehow while keeping it very Twin Peaks, he is exploring the mind of David Lynch in a big way. Yeah. And so I got to thinking like, who didn't have the chance to do this? Yeah. You know, who, yeah. Who did we? Who did we progress without? Right. That may have smoothed or shaken up that transition. Yeah. And so, you know, I think oh, that's that, interesting. that informed yeah. it a little bit, too. Uh, do you want to start or do you want me to start? I, you know, I, I will actually start with one that um, is probably on your list. Okay. Uh, my number five, and it's this is mostly just because of craft and nostalgia. Of, I'd like to see how Tony Scott would... He's not on my things. list. Okay, okay yeah. well, I was thinking, like, Top Gun 2 yep. is about to happen. Yep. And as much as I don't love Top Gun. I don't really right. care yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. As much as I just have no love for anything enough that I'd be against a reboot or a remake or because who gives a shit? Yeah. Something feels fundamentally wrong about Top Gun 2 without Tony Scott. Yeah. I don't know what that is. I can't disagree with that. It's Something feels fundamentally wrong is the only thing I can say yeah. about it. Am I going to see it? Yeah. Which yeah. is, you know, and but I would like to see a Tony Scott who... You know, the same Tony Scott who gave us a non-sequel sequel to the conversation. Yeah. The same Tony Scott that was making runaway train movies 
uh, you know, late in his career with Chris Pine and Denzel Washington. Yeah. What was it? Unwatchable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unstoppable. I, I actually kind of like that movie. T.J. Miller. Um, yeah, and it's it's a uh, Ethan Supley. Just seeing what what he would do. One with now, I mean, he did dip into the digital world and all mm-hmm. that, but seeing what he would do in a, he's gone, and so we have Michael Bay, and I love Michael right, Bay. Right, right. But uh, I, I think he would have been the other side of that coin. Yeah. Um, especially now that his brother is deeply entrenched in the uh, reboot culture, yep. who is putting out some of the best work of his career. Yeah. Alongside that and within that, yeah, I would like to see what you know Tony Scott can would would be doing now. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, with, with the ability to, I hate shaky cam. Yeah, I like kinetic filmmaking, and Tony Scott on a on a on a bad day would still walk that line pretty yeah. good. Sometimes it was a little too much for me, but I think, I think he would come. It, he would certainly have done a Bourne movie and made it better than any of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I just think he would have been the guy who was like, all right, I get what you're trying to do with all this crazy energy, but I want to show you how to make it sing, you know? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, it would have been cool. I I'm also just, I don't think I've seen a Tony Scott movie that even if I strongly disliked, I didn't completely finish and watch. You know, yeah. Like I was totally yeah. into it, so... Tony Scott, so will be missed. This is kind of a weird one that I'm going to start with because I have not actually seen many of his movies, but I just am so curious to see what Robert Altman would do. Almost made my list, dude. Uh, his so I've seen Nashville and I've seen The Player, oh. and and I love both of those movies. And one of the things I love about both of those movies, and people talk about this a lot with him, is just the way he lets dialogue kind of like overlap things all the time. Mm -hmm. You can just always hear people talking in the backgrounds of scenes and stuff. Sometimes you can kind of not even hear what's happening in the foreground. When people are in a car, he won't mic the inside of the car, so you just hear it from the outside. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's just, I don't know. His Gosford Park is great for that because it's a huge murder mystery. Yes. Everything's going. I saw that like on a plane when I was a kid. Uh, So like I don't don't remember it at all, and I thought it was boring as hell. But I love Nashville and I love the player. And I feel like digital filmmaking would have, I don't know, I'm very interested to see what he would have done with digital filmmaking. He certainly could have done like what we saw tonight yeah. where, you know, instead of doing just a wonder of a scene, yep. he could film it with five different cameras. Yes. And then when his ensemble gets back to that scene, we can check it from yeah. a different angle. Yeah, I, I would be so curious to see what he would do with it just because of the his tendency to sort of like let things run for a long time and let things overlap with each other. And I don't know. I think it would be interesting to see. He has see. so much more room to edit now, too. Yeah, yep. Because he can let it run over yep. and let it run forever. Yep. He, he'd be the guy who would end up giving us a giant, like, Boogie Nights-length ensemble piece that's a one-take. <laughs> yes, yeah. He would just do yeah. it. He would, yeah, it would be like Birdman, except it's an opera yeah. that has a huge cast. Yeah. I think that, uh, I mean, you have to see The Long Goodbye. That is just... I really want to see that. That's a, it's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. It, they, and it, it's funny too because you see Elliot Gould now, and he's just kind of you know, it's this old guy. Who's yeah, just yeah, kind of, yeah. But like he's he's a, I don't want to say a badass, but he's gruff. Yeah, and it's it's cool. That's cool. It's funny too because that uh, my mom like had such a crush on Elliot Gould when yeah. she was younger. Yeah. And so when I first heard her say that, I was like, "That's very weird." What are you and talking then when I saw about? Goodbye, I was like, "Oh, he's like a James." I get Cotton, it now. Where he's like, yeah. yeah, he was a, a young hunk. Yeah. But uh. That movie is very much a precursor to Inherent Vice, which uh-huh. I just adored. Yeah. And so I just wonder if if Altman were around, would that have fallen into different Oh, hands? true. Yeah. Interesting. Would he be trying to do, you know, Pinchon novels and things like yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I guess technically I've also seen Popeye, but I didn't yeah, want to yeah. bring that up. 
I don't actually remember Popeye, and I watched it a ton as a kid. Yeah. And I remember watching it and thinking that it was a movie that I was supposed to like because it's Popeye, but not particularly enjoying it. Right. But I know there's a culty love for it, so I'd kind of like to revisit. It's one of those things where it's interesting, mm-hmm. but it's like, what even is this? <laughs> like, what are we like doing? Super Mario yeah. <laughs> it's just, what are we all doing here spending our time on this? Yeah. Okay. It, I can yeah. see that. It, so there's, I mean, there are worthwhile things in it, but it's it's strange. It, it's, Fair enough. It, you were not wrong as a kid to go, I'm not connecting with yeah, this, this Popeye this movie. To me. Yeah. Okay. I just remember being like, hey, Mork. Yeah, 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 it's Mork because I was a kid, and that's yeah. as far as I can think. Yeah. Altman almost made my list. Yeah, just, he, yeah, he's a, he's good it, for that. Yeah, yeah, he's also dead, which is a great qualifier. He's, uh, for the, you know, he makes my list of dead guys. Uh, number four, I threw in there just because it's a. Uh, I, I wanted to shake up the list a, a little bit, but I don't know if I'm going to say his name right. But Marcin Rona, who's that? Mar uh, Marcin Rona wrote a movie, wrote and directed a movie called Demon. And it is a movie that I saw a few years back. And during a festival run of Demon, he killed himself in his hotel room. You're kidding. Not kidding. And no one knows why. It didn't seem to be spawned by anything. But Demon is a possession horror movie, but it is at a Jewish wedding. And it follows a Jewish legend of the Dybbuk. And a Dybbuk is a spirit that has unfinished business, and it attaches itself to a human. So it's a possession movie like that. Yeah. And the job of the Dybbuk is to attach itself to the human to get them to complete whatever is unfinished for this demon. So it's a piece of Jewish mythology, I would say. Yeah. I mean, it's you know the same way like angels are Catholic mythology, where it's it gets into the supernatural of it. But this is just a. I guess you get a. You it's get a really kind of a interesting. That it's a shotgun wedding. Yeah, okay. Actually, if you ever seen the possession, the possession is a Dybbuk movie as well. Okay. Um, but it's played more like a exorcism. Movie. Yeah. It's got Maris Yahoo as the, as the <laughs> shit. It's it's a pretty good little movie. Yeah. Jeffrey D. Morgan's in it, but Ooh. Demon is you know it's it's kind of artsy. It's kind of abstract and vague, but it's really striking and it's just a good movie um, to show. Like, here's a hot filmmaker that is going to kind of operate on his own terms and make his own movies in his own flavor, you know, in giving a very funny, very atypical exorcism piece that also reaches into Jewish mysticism. That's the reason for mysticism. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, but is still, you know, as it plays out, a horror movie, but is an art house film. And all I could think is like, dude could have made so many awesome movies. It looks like it cost, you know, it, it costs next to nothing. Yeah, yeah. But it looks great. Yeah. He could have made a lot more. Yeah. So I would like to have seen that. Yeah. What an interesting pick. I I remember you talking about that movie now. Did you see that at uh, Cinadelphia one year? I saw it at first Cinadelphia at the Jewish Film Festival here in Philadelphia. Yeah. And it was was really, really cool. That sounds good. I want to see that. I'm trying to... Okay. Uh, Oh, wait a minute. Something just popped in my head as I was saying that, that I wanted to say about Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. About how it, uh, what was I just saying about that movie? I said it, it looks good, it's made only cheap. Yeah. It's a Jewish miss. I don't know, it's gone. Yeah, I don't know. It'll, something might trigger it again. All right. Uh, Harold Ramis. 
Uh, who passed? I didn't even think about it. You know, not too long ago. Yeah. But uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of his comedy. I think like a lot of his comedies have just he was been primed for like a comeback too. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it, like people analyze this and analyze mm-hmm. that. I think are actually both very good, funny movies that don't get talked about enough. He he did continue to make like pretty good funny movies. He made that movie The Ice Harvest towards the end of his I career. I loved that movie. He yeah. he did a lot of interesting things. I would like to see what he would have done as an older man as a director cuz he didn't do a lot of directing uh mm-hmm. in his in his uh old, you know uh, old age, but that's partly because of the disease he was battling. Mm-hmm. Um I would have liked to have seen his older sensibilities on something like I I think because of The Ice Harvest, I could see him maybe expanding out into some more dramatic stuff that would yeah. be interesting. But the thing that I, when I was doing research for this and I looked up and I was like, this is why I'm putting this guy on this list, is one of the things he directed that I didn't even know he directed is the Benahana Christmas episode of The Office. I, I do not know. I mean, I know of that one, but I've, I don't think I've oh seen it. Oh, my God. It is it is one of the funniest episodes of The Office. It, it they, they go to this Benihana restaurant uh, and Michael is having some pretty bad depression issues at the time. Uh, and is feeling lonely and invites both of the waitresses back to the office Christmas party. Oh, no. Because he knows he's in love with one of them, but they look so similar, he ah. doesn't remember which. That's so classic. It's it's incredible. And then the whole episode is him trying to figure out which one is the one that he's fallen in love with. Again, fallen in love with at the dinner they were just at yeah, at yeah. that restaurant. You know, That's incredible. Uh, at one point, he lit- he thinks he figures it out. And he casually marks one of them with a marker just so that he knows that that's yeah, yeah, the one. Yeah. Like, he, he literally, that's he just, like, without them knowing, casually. That's such a like, setup. It's amazing. It's so funny. And it made me realize, like, that, I don't know, he just, he is such a, he was such a funny man that never lost that. Like, mm-hmm. he, you know, he really knew how to build these, uh, and I realized this, too, a lot of his comedy was about, like, tension. Mm-hmm. A lot of his, you know, Caddyshack, uh, Vacation, he directed Vacation. Groundhog they're, Day. Yeah, they're about this sort of, like, building, mounting tension and the comedy that comes from tension. And uh, I don't know, I just, he never lost that. He only got, like, better at that. He was, like, perfect to be directing episodes of The Office. You know what I mean? I would have loved to see him. Year One was the last thing he made, basically. I kind of like that it's movie, funny. too. It's yeah. funny. It's got good jokes in it and stuff, but, like, I would have liked to have seen him... You know, I it's don't know. Too gimmicky. D- yeah, yeah, dig something into something big, that wasn't yeah. like that. Something that was more character focused. You mm-hmm. know, um, yeah. He, man, I miss Harold Ramis. He was great. I think when he died, people realized how influential and how just deeply, deeply in the DNA of our childhood his yeah. his humor was. Yes, and, and so I think he was primed for some kind of a comeback. Yeah. At the at the same time, too, it's like. I rub up against a lot of comedy now yeah. because it'll be funny, but it's just not my flavor. Yeah. Um, you know, it'll be a cameo parade or it'll just be a lot yeah. of like mumblecore stuff, which can work and sure. oftentimes really, yeah. really does. But uh, I think it's why I responded so well to the new Ghostbusters is, yeah. is it kind of captured that old style yeah, humor. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, I think it did very much capture mm-hmm. that. And so a lot of new comedy, I kind of, I, I would say unfairly reject, but not even really reject. It's just I'm not interested. Yeah. And his if if I saw something that appeared to be that type of comedy, it would excite me greatly. Yeah, yeah. You know, it would be that kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I miss that, man. It was a good one. Yeah. What's your number four? My number four. What do I have? I mean, that was my number four with Marston Rona. Oh, oh yeah, sorry. Your number three. 
My number three, and I'm assuming he'll probably be on your list, just because there's nothing I love better than a master checking in every once in a while to remind all the copycats how it's done. And Wes Craven made a career. He's on out my of list, motherfucker. That. He would have yeah. been my number three too. Let's talk oh, about it. Oh, right him. on, right on. Um, Wes Craven, he did step out of of horror for Music of the Heart, which I have not seen. I've never seen that either. But he does speak the film language, so yeah. I'm sure that it's good. Yeah. At the same time, he really seems to have. Uh, if you ever seen New Nightmare, have I you seen New Nightmare? I'm dying to see that. I think I'm. He's a character in it. Yeah. And he's a character who's very aware of who he is, what his influence is on the genre. Yeah. What um, you know, what the genre has done since his influence yeah. has stamped it, and to be that aware and to he, he pre he he meta predated meta <laughs> which is insane yeah. which is the ultimate meta mm-hmm. but beyond that it was just i i think he was he was so unashamed of exploring just spooky fun ideas for yes. the sake of spooky fun that that like that when he does meta it doesn't feel meta you know right. he's he doesn't feel like he's ever there's never any condescension in his movies towards the form of horror mm-hmm. and because he just likes that whole yeah. spookiness of it. And that's something that does not exist. Yeah. I, I mean, he scream was one of the early horror movies I saw. That was, you know, that was, I had seen Halloween and one or two other things, maybe shining and something else probably. And I, I don't know. He just, there was, he made horror something that I was like, interested in that it was like one of the first times i remember being like oh this is like fun like mm-hmm. the, you know uh and then getting to see a nightmare on elm street finally like many many years later i truly think that's <clears throat> one of the best horror movies i've ever seen oh, like i i love a nightmare on elm street and i i just you know uh george romero left his stamp on this world in a big bad way with horror i, I Wes craven i maybe even outshines that for me. Like I really, something about a nightmare on Elm street, I think is just exceptional uh, and is like legendary worthy in and of itself, let alone the rest of his career, which is mm-hmm. also so interesting and full of even great his worst horror. movies are still just, uh, there's so many movies that are just like, I'm going to scare you. Yeah. His movies have the like, let's get scared. Yeah. yeah and I, yeah. I love that aspect yeah. of it. And like, we we've talked about it a million times the the post nine eleven uh just cynicism of oh, horror yeah, yeah and uh he I don't think he ever obtained or retained that no and that's that's kind of cool yeah you know, he he loves to scare you because isn't it fun yeah you know, it's it's okay to be scared it's, yeah that's that's cool that's uh I mean this is not a Wes Craven quote but it's closely related one of my favorite things I've ever heard a horror director say was at the very beginning of John Carpenter's episode on WTF the first thing Mark Maron says is man Halloween scared the shit out of me when I was a kid yeah. and John Carpenter goes oh, my pleasure yeah 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 <laughs> he was such a great interview yeah. too but then that's the thing is it but that's what it, I mean that is what it. makes yeah. those guys yeah it's just it's like you said it's the oh let's get scared mm-hmm. it's the yeah and it's just the idea too of just like. It's so weird because I don't want to comment on the idea that everything's a retread or a reboot. Right, but yeah. horror is something that goes through cycles of yeah. formula. Yeah. Um Saw's coming back, baby. Saw's coming back. But like there's there's formula to it where yep. um we just 
we're sort of reaching the nadir of the supernatural horror research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the trailer for Annabelle Creation literally yes. says the next piece of the Conjuring universe. Right. Yep. And and it never occurred to me to that moment that we've been watching that build forever. Right. It's crazy. And it's a universe that, frankly, I love. Yeah. It's great, and I really love it because it stepped away from cynical, yep. uh, fast zombie and yep. torture porn. Yep. And um, which both I think have their merits and have yeah. been used, but they're earnest horror, horror movies. Through, yeah, it goes through cycles like that. Yep. In the eighties was the slashers, yep. in the nineties was the whodunits. Yep. In and Wes Craven had an entry in each of these. Yeah. And in each one made it his own, commented on the genre, yep. but did not lampoon it, did nope. not hate it, just said, I want to play with it in my yeah. flavor. Yeah. That's really cool. And yeah. and in let's see, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh Scream. Yep. New Nightmare. Yeah. So that's three decades in which he changed the game. Yep. That's that's awesome. Yeah. He even came back to do a Scream 4 to try and, yeah. you know, keep that kind of thing going. Which it's, is good. Yeah. I like Scream 4 yeah. quite a bit. He, he, you know, he he continued to do that. He I I miss him, too. Wes Craven. Uh, do your number two, since that was both of our number threes. All right. My number two, and I feel like this, is, this would be on everyone's list, but this is the one most heavily in the idea that I would like to see this filmmaker explore modern thematics, especially when his final movie, Eyes Wide Shut. Dude, he's my number two, too, okay, so let's yeah, just Stanley talk about Kubrick. him. <laughs> yeah. What's so cool about Stanley Kubrick is that every single one of his movies is a different thing, and they're all distinctly Kubrick. Yep. Um, you turn it on, and even if you don't know you're watching it, there's a certain flavor, a yeah. feel that you get. And if you are a Kubrick fan, you immediately you pick know it immediately. It. It's so indelible that when you watch documentaries about his movies, it captures that yep. magic. Um, you can see his influence on every single filmmaker. Oh yeah, is he gonna ad- adapt a book? Yeah, he'll adapt a book, sure. and it might be Eyes Wide Shut. It also might be, might Lolita. be uh, Lolita. It might be uh, Doctor Strangelove, yep. a drama book that. In his words, well, in a misquote of his words, that he couldn't help but make a comedy, so <laughs> yeah. he just went with it as a comedy. Yeah, there's a that the type of brain that can do that. Like Scorsese's still alive, so he does that same kind of yes. thing too. Um, I I don't know. I, I mean, who doesn't want more Kubrick? Well, it's not just more Kubrick. I think it is specifically. This is another one. Where it's very specifically like I want to see him use the new tools. Yeah. I know that sounds strange because I'm not even crazy about all the new tools, but mm-hmm. like, but like when I saw Scorsese use 3D, uh, oh, that was incredible with Hugo. It was unreal. Mm-hmm. I want to see what he might be able to do with 3D. And he does love the cons. Like he's definitely someone who is a lover of the medium, the way Scorsese. Yeah, is, that even if you made a bad movie, you could tell he probably wouldn't be able to help himself but to do it. Right. Like with uh, what was it, Hugo? Yeah, that was a love letter to uh, to movies and yeah. to movies and movies started as a gimmick. Yep. So for Scorsese to then incorporate the gimmick of the day into something that is resonant to that, yeah, Kubrick would have done something similar. Yeah, I think Kubrick would have played with IMAX. Yep. Um, oh, I think Kubrick, definitely. Kubrick when he uh, when he died, I mean, he has a credit on AI. Right. Yes. So he was definitely moving into the world of. You know, heavy CGI, new technology, new technology. Yeah. So he certainly would have played with that. Yeah, I think so. And I, I just would be so interested to see what he would have done with it. Like, uh, like I, I don't know why he would or what he would use it for, but like I would love to see him direct a motion capture performance mm-hmm. and see what happens when that's in Kubrick's hands. Like, mm-hmm. I, I just 
It would be so fascinating to see what he would do with the medium now. Actually, you know what I bet Kubrick would have done? Yeah. I would put money on this. Yeah. He would have gone to TV. Oh, yeah. I think that's what he would have done. Yeah. Um, Soderbergh is, I mean, Soderbergh always says he's leaving movies. <laughs> and he's but, always um, coming back. Always coming back. I, he's just, he's too good. It's in his DNA. He's, yeah. He, he made a movie on his iPhone it. after making the movie yeah. that he said he was never going to make. Wait, what movie was the... So he made Lucky Logan. Mm. And then literally already has another movie coming out shortly after Lucky Logan. Because after he made Lucky Logan, he shot a movie on his iPhone. I forget so what it's I called. I about the iPhone one. I didn't realize he didn't... He, he was never going to make Lucky Logan. Well, uh, in the sense oh, that he that had he retired. Was quitting. Okay. Yeah, he had so retired. I, more to, but um, the uh, I, his show, The Nick, is yes, apparently by all great. accounts incredible. Yeah. And everyone says that it's Soderbergh going. The the resources and the time, like the resources you have for TV, as well as the time you have to develop a character. Yeah. And uh, I don't watch a lot of TV, but the TV shows I like are the ones that really believably just like create a character. Yeah. And Kubrick, I think, would not have been able to help himself but to do something like that. He would have done, like, a band of brothers thing. Yes. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, he definitely would have done something like that. He would mm-hmm. have explored his sort of fascination with military men in a more in-depth way on TV exactly. or, or he something. would have done something like a true detective. Yeah. Where it's just a single season yep. that ended up becoming more. But he would yeah, have, yeah, you yeah. know. And also in the same way that, like, when Walking Dead came out, it was Darabont was the right. was the flavor. Yeah. And even though he's gone from it, his flavor I presumably persists. Um, uh, Boardwalk Empire was Scorsese yep. flavored. He did the first episode and set it off. Yep. I guarantee you Kubrick would have set something up totally. and then would have created a show that shows a distillation yeah. of that flavor. Do you think there's a world in which if Kubrick were still alive that weird Stephen King universe show, Castle Rock, that Hulu's developing, mm-hmm. would get uh, Kubrick to do the pilot so that they could then have this show that's very like Kubrickian influence that Stephen I King... I mean, why not? I, oh, that would be so interesting. If they could somehow make a horror anthology that's done by like the greats, I know. like a Scorsese horror, yeah. and then like if Kubrick was there, yeah. that would be... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. want to see Scorsese. After Shutter Island, I want to see Scorsese Dude. do an outright horror movie. I know, me too. Me too. Uh, so that brings us to number ones, my friend. Number one. I know who mine is for sure. And I'm now curious, actually, if it's going to match up with yours. All right. How do, do you do we do it on three or just okay. one of us go three, first? Three, two, one. Buster Hitchcock. Keaton. Okay, great. Okay, good. Perfect. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll do Hitchcock quick because Hitchcock is easy. I He's another guy that I just, I mean, that dude made a million fucking movies in his lifetime to begin with. Mm-hmm. He never stopped making them. He was always trying new things. He is still the most like experimental, interesting filmmaker that I can think of. Like all of the things that we look at now and go, like, did you see that one take action scene at the end of Children of Men? And it's like, yeah, but I also saw the one take movie that was stitched together in the same way by Hitchcock, mm-hmm. made in 1940. Yep. Like it, he just pioneered everything. And I would love to see him alive today to continue also, pioneering all of this technology. And he's stuff. a Werner Herzog in that at a point in his career, he completely understood what his character was. Yes. Yeah. He got that. He was a player in these things. Yeah. Um, you know, in the same, you know, like he, he became an embodiment of the, the auteur theory. Yes. But he also like, he knew what it meant to be a Hitchcock picture. And he played that role yep. the way that Werner Herzog now plays the Werner Herzog role. Yeah. That would have developed nicely along with the technology yeah. to create some kind of strange beast. Totally, he's another one that I think. I mean, he did he Alfred Hitchcock presents, which is on yep. Netflix, yep. is a great show. It's really good. That could have easily made a comeback. Totally, yeah, that kind of thing. And to, 
one of the things I would be most interested in would be to see Hitchcock develop with the genre of horror. Mm -hmm. We never got to see that because horror didn't take that leap into more gruesome, grotesque things Mm -hmm. until after his time, really. And uh, I would be very interested to see him develop with that genre. Um, I don't, I don't know what he, I don't know what he'd do with it, but I, I'd be curious. I mean, he'd certainly. He's a, one of my favorite Hitchcock quotes. As someone asked him what he's afraid of, yeah, and his quote was, "You'll never see me drive an automobile because that way I'll never be pulled over by a policeman." <laughs> he did not like the police. Uh-huh. He was afraid of the police, uh-huh. and I don't think anybody's afraid of the police. Um. I don't think a man like Hitchcock is afraid of the police on a personal level so right. much as he probably mistrusts the institution of police. Yeah. I mean, need I say more why yeah. it would be cool yeah, that why he made it would a be movie amazing now? If you he know, was like, making movies right now. He obviously had some ideas about things like that that yeah. you know, people asked him that because, oh, you're the horror master. Yeah. What scares you? What scares you? Yeah. But he obviously had an idea like that is scary. Yeah. You know, I'm not even someone who would likely be killed by police. But I'll tell you what, I don't. I, I get scared when they're around. Me too. I wonder what he would explore with that. But it, I think it just shows that he has his finger on the button of the idea that, like, I know what scares people, so if I tweak it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Show, he made showers scary. Yep. It's just, yep. it's as simple as that. Yeah. He, ugh, would love, would well, love in it. Well, in the same vein as the technology thing, the reason why I picked Buster Keaton yeah. is simply because Buster Keaton is is my favorite of the silent film okay. stunt. Because he's a stunt man. Stunt dude. He yep. does very dry comedy. Yep. Um, and when dry is done right, it's very funny. And even in his later uh, work where he talks, the dryness doesn't disappear just because it's a talkie. Right. But to see a Buster Keaton to be able to have unlimited takes. Yes. He didn't need them because he was so precise with the planning. Yeah. But imagine knowing the safety net of having as many takes as you want. Yeah. He could construct something that is just layers upon layers of Rube Goldbergian stunt work, yeah, filled with deadpan humor that, they, frankly, were not available to him at the time. Right. Conversely, it could be a situation like, remember when everyone got editing software and then could make some, like good videos on Vine, and <laughs> yeah. then Vine started to suck, yeah, because it wasn't defined by its limitations yeah. anymore. That could be the downfall of him, but I think that I think the gamble's worth it because I think he's the type of person that would push that to a new limitation we didn't even see and be defined by. I that. was going to say the you flip know? side of that is he could have made the Mad Max Fury Road of physical exactly. comedy movies. That's a big reason of why why he would be on here. I yeah. mean, his uh, George Miller's intention was if you turned off the sound, you could still tell that yep. and it works. Yep, and it's just as engaging and impressive and and. Just the planning is is unreal. Imagine a stunt-filled physical comedy that was actually 90 minutes long, and it was one long, just machine, you know? That thing that Keaton does, but just extended for the length of a movie. It could go forever, and it would be... And just because of the safety net of cuts... Yep. You know, he could he could do that. Yep. And that actually reminded me of what I wanted to say about uh Hit it, dude. I forgot about. And we talk about this all the time. Yeah. Um, so many movies now are made in post production. Yes. And pre production is really where it's at. Yeah. And for a uh and I'm not saying really where it's at, but it's something that that you don't see as often. Um, you mean like all the pre planning that people do? That's why for, a John Wick works. Yeah, because you make those action sequences yeah. before you film them. Yeah. Whereas when something's choppy, it's like, well, we'll make it afterwards. Yeah, we'll figure it out. And so if Ethan Hawke is to be believed, uh, before the Devil Knows You're Dead is the best of both worlds. In that 
they obviously planned out their characters deeply yeah. and and planned out the structure of this and everything was perfectly you know put together yeah but any shortcomings apparently Lamette was just like we'll cut it together right yeah, don't we'll worry about it, it. yeah and so the same way that a Buster Keaton would be able to say like we're gonna plan this out perfectly. And if it goes wrong, we'll cut it. Whatever we've cut got, it. we've yep. got literally unlimited film. <laughs> yeah, I, and I think and so. That's a credit I'd be fascinating to, to see that for yeah. those who did. But I think that's something that Buster Keaton would do. And, yeah, yeah, it's cool stuff. R.I.P. to uh, all eight, nine, ten of these uh, gentlemen that mm-hmm. we uh, that we've talked about this evening. It's. Uh, I mean, I'm really sad to lose uh, Romero, um, but. Uh, I do like having these reasons to kind of like go back and and look at these lives and careers and kind of consider them like this. It's uh I don't know. You, it's like that weird somber kind of feeling of just mm-hmm. like this sucks, but it's also this is this is life. This is the world. It keeps moving, and uh, we can just be thankful for the work that uh, George Romero gave us, and uh, thankful that it will continue to be a. Uh, Sort of a gold standard for what you can do mm-hmm. in in certain genres and what you can you do never with really satire. Had a chance to suck. Yeah. yeah, I mean, people argue that some movies are better than others, yeah. but I don't think he ever like bottomed out like a lot of he, people do. I mean, like I can't make that argument about John Carpenter, and I wish I could. Yeah, you yeah. know, yeah. So he's a uh, the 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 cynical bittersweetness to that is someone asked me they were like what are you going to do when Stephen King dies yeah. and I was like well I will rejoice that now I will probably be able to finish all of his books <laughs> yeah yeah because I can't keep up with them yeah and so whereas George Romero wasn't pumping stuff out yeah. at least now you know you can see his whole body of work I it just sh- come sure to completion can. yeah you know, that was when the white stripes broke up I was dumbfounded yeah but at the same time I was like you know what good it's complete now it's a collection of stuff it's done yeah we can do it you know yeah. and that's that's cool yeah uh, so, uh, R.I.P. to everybody that we uh, discussed tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, all made very valuable contributions to the thing that Dan and I love most in the world, which is movie movies mm-hmm. and uh, cheese. I also cheese. I, I like cheese list. a lot too. My doctor says I got to slow it. down on that cheese, though. Uh, I haven't been so. to the doctor in a little bit. Oh yeah, and I'm stay away because, because they're going to tell you to stop eating the cheese. cheese. Thing, yeah. They're going to tell you to stop eating cheese. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. Listen, you know, though, I'm still eating cheese. I'm just eating less cheese. You don't. You don't. You can't. Use Q-tips in your ear. And yeah. every time a doctor said that to me, I was like, I'm going to go home and use Q-tips because <laughs> you reminded me of how awesome that is. Yeah. So, you know. Fair enough. Uh, doctors are meant to be heard, not listened to. <laughs> it's basically the moral of the story, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. That's terrible. Yeah. You see anything you want to recommend? Oh, did I see anything I want to recommend? Uh, I'll throw it out there while you're thinking. Please do. Just yesterday, I saw a ghost story. Oh, yeah. A Rooney Mara. David Lowry. And, uh, yes, David Lowry wrote and directed. I don't know who that is, though. Did you do something else? He that, did Peach Dragon last year. Oh, that's Same kind guy. of wild. Okay. Because yeah. it's a very minimal movie. Rooney oh, Mara, he also made uh, uh, Ain't, Casey Affleck. Ain't Them Body Saints. Is that what that was called? I don't know. I mean, I, I know that, that name, but I don't know what that is. I think that he or made... did he do a guide to recognize it? Saints, no, I'm right. pretty sure he did Ain't Them Body Saints. Oh, yeah, I was thinking of Dito Montiel. <laughs> um, okay, well, okay, David Lowery wrote and directed this, and it is a, uh, there's very little dialogue. Yeah. It is a very slow burn, and I left that theater devastated. Yeah. Like, devastated. I really want to see this. Because it's a story about. I, I kind of know what it's about. Okay, well, and I'm not going to tell yeah. you the plot or anything, but. What I took from it and why it, it really hit me hard is, and I, I said this to my girlfriend, is that if I were left alone and given the opportunity to retreat into loneliness, 10 years later, I would suddenly realize 
I am I'm nothing and I am sad. Yeah. And I would I would totally go into that happily without even knowing. Yeah. But I totally have the potential to just hermit up and then realize oh my life, it's gone, you know? Yeah. And so I thank people like her and people like yourself yeah, for yeah. being in my life because you because I'm not lonely. Yeah. Because you force me against my animal to go out and be and yeah. do. And this is a movie about missing the opportunity to do exactly that. Yeah. And so seeing this thing that could very easily happen to me without good people around me telling me not to be a hermit. Yeah. It it just it was a very real it tapped into a real emotion. I was like, damn, that's yeah. That's some hard ass shit to, yeah. to do. I'm I'm very interested to see it's that. It's good. Yeah. It's quite good. So a ghost story. I highly recommend it. It is a Quite a quite a lovely little movie. I heard it's great. You're gonna come out of it feeling some type of way. I'll tell you that much. I'm gonna recommend a Romero since it is what I most recently saw. Do Two it. Evil Eyes is on Amazon Prime right now, and it's re- I really liked it. I think it's really fun. It's a great anthology because it's only two movies, so they both get a full hour, uh, which is nice. Uh, and um, Romero's is the first one, and it's really good. Actually, it's like very good. It it, it is like great evidence for how great a storyteller he is because he's got this strict confine of 60 minutes that he's got to tell his story in. And he fucking, I mean, he like, in the first 10 minutes, you're like, I know who everybody is and I know what their lives are like outside of this Did movie. Did he write it too? Uh, I think he, uh, I don't know who adapted it. It's it's based on an Edgar Allan Poe story, but okay. I don't know if he is who adapted the script or not. Uh, and then the Dario Argento movie that follows it is an adaptation of The Black Cat, which there have been many of. But I'm going to argue... Him and Argento both have writing credits. There you go. I'm going to argue that Argento's adaptation of The Black Cat is the best one. On this basis alone, it features Harvey Keitel in the lead role. No shit. Who's amazing. And he plays a man who's drunk through most of the movie and is constantly yelling about this cat. So you get scenes... Where at one point Harvey Keitel is like yelling at his girlfriend. He's like, "Ah, you're always yelling about the cat." Meow, meow. <laughs> it's the greatest. And he kind of looks like a shitty junkyard cat oh, too. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the greatest. It it barely makes any sense. It's a very Argento movie that is more about the images that are being presented mm-hmm. and the mood that's being evoked than it is about the actual narrative. Uh, but it's pretty good. I, I So Two Evil Eyes, it's on Amazon Prime, and I had a ton of fun with it. Definitely recommend it. I'm going to watch that. It's really I'm fun. I'm definitely going to watch that. It's and cool. I'm also going to pitch something to you because you Please. have Amazon Prime once we get off the air. Oh, okay, Sorry great. That. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let's get off the air then. Why don't we do that? Uh, you can find our show on Twitter at I Like Two Movie. That's America 2, Facebook.com slash I Like Two Movie. Uh, we're on Libsyn. We are on iTunes. Leave us a review, a rating, recommend a movie for us to do. We've done it in the past. We like taking listener recommendations. If you throw them in an iTunes review or email us at I Like Two Movie. Uh, numeric2 at gmail.com. Uh, we will take you up on those recommendations and we'll put an episode out. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that we that that you came up with the term the numeric two. Right. Because it always drove me nuts when we'd be like, that's I like two movie. The number two. Right. It's, like, it's that, yeah. Numeric two. Yeah, that's numeric the gets ooh, it. I love that's it. That's the hook. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Philadelphia. It's with an F. Uh, and uh, I'm on letterbox.com slash Philadelphia, also with an F. Oh, and uh, look me up on farsightedblog.com. I'm continuing my Herschel Gordon Lewis series for the. 11th month in a row uh, with She Devils on Wheels recently. Uh, check that out, farsightedblog.com. Uh, Dan Scully on everything. I'm on Letterboxd. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Dan Scully. <laughs> and you can check out uh, some reviews and such on Cynadelphia.com. Hell yeah. And uh, shout out to Cynadelphia. Shout out to Cynadelphia. 
Uh, shout out also to the uh, the Shame Files podcast Shame Files from our friends at Philadelphia. That's right. Philadelphia. 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 The website we were talking about. Yeah. You should check that out <laughs> as well. And you know what? Just because a friend to the show, Alex Perlman and Satoyo, oh. they have recently launched a podcast. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I would like to throw a plug out there for the Them Boys podcast. Them Boys podcast. Uh, two very smart... Very energetic yes. and very opinionated men yes. talking about the issues of the day. And I gave the first episode a listen, and it's quite enjoyable. And I have a feeling that I, I, I get the inside scoop of the topic of the next one, yeah. and I'm going to say that you don't want to miss it. If you like when people shout at each other, but it's not because they're like mad at each other, <laughs> yep. they're just mad at everything else, it's yep. the best. Let their anger absorb yours. Yes, it's, yeah, yeah. I, I highly recommend it. I do too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's called Them Boys. Them Boys Podcast. Check that out. Uh, all right, let's wrap this thing up. My name is Garrett Smith, and I like to movie movie. My name is Dan Scully, and I like to movie movie. And we all know that you like to movie movie because we, we like, like to movie. movie.